Welcome back to another episode of Letters from a Contrarian. With me this week, I have Lisa Bildi. She is a lawyer for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, but she's known uh, more famously for leading the Stop Sop campaign. If you don't know what the Stop Sop campaign, it was the successful campaign that tried to stop the Statement of Principles. And the Statement of Principles, of course, was the movement uh, or the requirement put forward by the Law Society of Ontario, um, which would compel lawyers to check a box saying that they would promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in their work place of work. If you would like to learn more about it, just check it up in Google or listen to the first three minutes of my last episode with Mr. Ryan Handlarski. Um, I thought I'd do something different today and point out at what minute, roughly speaking, we talked about issues. So for the first half hour, I asked Miss Bildy about her personal disagreements with the movement, the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. For the second half hour, at around starting at around the 30-minute mark, um, I asked her about how she got out the message through emails and also what she put, what she focused on with regards to content. At the 55-minute mark, we talked about how to create new institutions like um, separate law guilds, one for woke lawyers, other another for liberal lawyers. At the hour and a half mark, she critiqued Mr. Handlarski's ideas on creating new communities, which um, he and I discussed in my last episode, um, which you should also listen to if you're new here. At the two-hour mark, uh, we criticized the intellectual dark web and Ms. Bildi also offered some helpful tips on how to say, stay sane on Twitter. And lastly, at the two hour and 20 minute mark, we talked about flirting in the workplace, how that has changed in the last five to 20 years and where we could go forward with this for the future. This was my longest podcast ever uh, recorded. So I hope you enjoyed it as I did. I listened to this podcast. I listened to this episode multiple times and I feel like I'm hearing new things every time I, I listen to it. So it's definitely jam-packed. Um, thanks for listening to the episode once again and enjoy. Miss Lisa Bildi, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Eugene. Um, so my first question, which I ask everyone, is what the most unpopular belief is that they have defended in their life. So what's that for you? Most pop- unpopular belief I have defended? Well, these days, it's uh, freedom of expression, um, <laughs> it seems to be, or freedom of conscience. Uh, it, I was surprised to find that that was a, a controversial thing to have to defend, but apparently it is. So um, before that, before before all of this culture that, wall, oh wars gosh, that, yeah, I've had to defend. I'm trying to find the roots of 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 your steel will, mm. you know. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so the roots of my steel will come from a, a sort of a long history of. Um, you know, just life experiences and trying to, I mean, I, I, I have kind of uh, tried very much to um, fit inside the box for most of my life. And 
probably only just in, I have lived out some things that are clearly not in the box, like, you know, stepping out of my professional life and homeschooling my kids and all those kinds of things. So I suppose defending those would be the first, um, I guess, my, my first experience with sort of going off the hamster wheel or off the beaten track would, would be uh, having gone, you know, independent with our, with our educational approach, which was not an ideological thing. It was a purely a, a response to a, a need, um, but you sort of get pegged as being kind of weird and out there. So I, I guess, I'm not sure if I, def if I defended it necessarily, but I embraced it and I, and I lived with the, um, the consequences that flowed from that, which is, you know, I was kind of an outlier in my particular um, neighborhood and social circle and, and probably at that point started to feel the constraints of not, not fitting in anymore. Not that I ever in my entire life have felt like I fit in, mm -hmm. uh, even in my own family of origin, I, I didn't always feel like I fit in. So, but I, but I have striven through most of my life to fit in and uh, it's been through a very long process that I have re recognized that I'm much happier when I don't. And, uh, and I, you know, it's, maybe it's taken me longer than it should have, but here I am, um, I'm now over 50, and it was probably almost 50 years before I fully, um, you know, became willing to um, put myself out there publicly as being kind of an outlier. Right. It's, so this is always something that I've been curious about. It's, so the podcast is called Letters from a Contrarian. But now I'm right. thinking you don't necessarily have to be um, countercultural or anything like that. Is it possible in theory to be a contrarian while still being like a mainstream, I'm going to go down the beaten path kind of person? And I think that when I say contrarian, I think it refers to someone who is courageous enough to pursue um, their own path and, and get off it when it's necessary and speak out when it's necessary. So, so it sounds to me like you fit that bill. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it, it comes through even just your experience in childhood where you, you know, um, childhood is an unfortunately conforming experience, right? Like you have to kind of be like everybody else if you want to be one of the cool kids. And that means kind of checking who you might actually be in order to to mold yourself. And, and when you're in those formative years, this can actually, uh, that can actually be kind of damaging to a contrarian, right? Sure. Uh, unless you embrace it and have the wherewithal to, to, to do that as a, at a young age, which I mean, some kids uh, always, always did, but, uh, but that wasn't necessarily me. So I think I spent a lot of years um, observing people very, very carefully. That's kind of my nature too. I'm a very observant person and uh, I can still remember you know, being um, very, just a very astute about what was acceptable and what wasn't and conforming myself to what I perceived to be the, you know, the popular route uh, in high school. So, um, and I can take you back even further, but as a small kid, I was kind of like the Hermione Granger of the classroom, right? I was the one who always had the answers, my hand shooting up in the air and, oh, not Lisa again, <laughs> the other kids would say. <laughs> Okay. And, <laughs> and at some point in about grade seven, I realized that wasn't cool. And then I kind of went in the opposite direction and then the dumb blonde thing through most of high school barely squeaked out. Uh, and then it, it took me a long time to realize that, uh, you know, all the way probably through, through law school even, uh, and back and out into practicing law that I kind of had that, that, um, 
that moment where you kind of go, oh, wow, they, they think I'm smart. They really think I'm smart. And then I went, oh, maybe I am. And, and uh, but I had lost a lot of that by my efforts to conform and not be that, that Hermione Granger of high school too. And so why, why then did you not go along with the social justice postmodern movement taking place in law schools as well as in the legal profession, um, exemplified by the statement of principles where you know, you're conforming to equality, equity, diversity, and, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I mean, again, I have to kind of almost trace a path, I think, to make it understandable. Um, uh, you know, I did step off the beaten path when I decided to, to homeschool my kids. Um, I'm older, too, so, like, you know, this stuff wasn't in my law school. Um, I, I didn't have any exposure to critical theory, critical race theory, social justice, all those kinds of things to any great degree. I mean, it was starting a little bit. Um, you know, there were some feminist movements that I, I kind of loosened in on a couple of times. I went to a couple of LEAF meetings. That's the Legal Education and Action Fund. It's a feminist group. And I thought, oh, I really don't like this stuff. I mean, I, you know, then it was, it didn't resonate for me at all. But it wasn't like something I had to really be immersed in in those days. And that was early 90s. So it was coming, but I, but it wasn't. It hadn't fully infiltrated my, my law school experience. I think I managed to to escape that. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I uh, my kids weren't a great fit for school, and when we pulled them out to homeschool, that actually freed me up. I think in terms of my own mindset to to view a lot of things differently than I had. Right, like I I had always assumed there would be sort of a clear path through life, and, and I was on it, and you know there wouldn't be too many things that would take me off of it, but um, I also went through something personal, and I won't get into too much detail, but just um, there was some personality disorder involved, and I started to learn a little bit about um, borderline personality disorder, and so while I was home with my kids and going through some of that stuff with my um, person that was, was going through this alongside them, um, I just started to, to view the world through a different sort of lens than I might have otherwise had I been on that sort of mainstream path of just carrying on with the practice of law and just kind of, you know, trying to fit in with, with the, the acceptable thought. I was already kind of off a little bit. And then these life experiences um, started make, making me see certain patterns as I was observing the world around me. And I think so the, probably in the, I don't know, 20, 2013, 2014, certainly by 2015, I was really seeing the patterns, um, which I, I tied a lot of it back to what I was seeing with borderline personality disorder, which is this victim um, ideal. You know, you're, 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 you're painting yourself as a victim. Someone else is the um, oppressor to you and, uh, or you're, they become your target, you're the source that you blame for all of your feelings in life. And then you actually sabotage your own well-being in order to maintain that narrative of being the victim that that is those are some of the traits that are common to that particular personality disorder so as we were dealing with that and i was seeing what i thought were fairly similar sorts of thinking coming up you know in 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 the world around me um i started viewing i started paying a lot more attention and i had time because my kids by that point were fairly independent with their studies we weren't really like uh it wasn't like school where I was in front of the, you know, the class every day or anything. I mean, they were basically on their own, doing their own thing. So you were saying you were homeschooling, uh, your kids got more independent, and you noticed some 
commonalities between borderline personality disorder and the movement for diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I was starting to see, it wasn't so much that, that it, um, it tied to that specific movement, but, um, but just in different things that I was seeing culturally, um, a lot of the grievance sort of um, view of the world that, you know, everyone is so hard done by it, somebody else's fault, you know, we're just starting to see a, an evolution of that kind of thinking and on campuses and so on, and then growing need for, for safe spaces and, and um, the glorifying of sort of the victim state of mind as opposed to the more stoic, you know, um, survival, you know, I've pulled through this and that makes me a, a stronger, better person. Now it's the victim status that made you the, the valued person, right? Um, so I was just kind of seeing a lot of those, those patterns and trends. Um, and it was in, I guess, probably the fall of 2017 when I was deciding whether I should go back to practicing law, having taken a pretty long hiatus from it, uh, other than some contract work from, from home. Um, and that's when I became aware of the law society's thing. And, and I just sort of recognized it right off the bat as being um, of a piece with what I had been observing in, in the broader culture war. By that point, I think it was, to me at least, it was, it was a very obvious, um, um, you know, illiberal sort of constraint on, um, on what people were allowed to think in order to practice law. So, right. so yeah. Were you not afraid that you would lose your... So, so this is before you started the Stop Sop campaign. This is when you're just an individual. Um, mm-hmm. Were you, you started to speak up about, up, up and against the Law Society. When did this happen and were you not afraid of the, the reputational consequences of that? Were you afraid that you would lose your license, um, so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly was. Um, I will back up another little bit just to add one more piece, and that is, like everybody else, I jumped onto social media um, when it developed. I was an early, uh, an early participant in Facebook um, back when it was still, I don't know, like 2010 or something, still quite early. Um, and I was recognizing how political it had become and how people were um, sharing opinions of themselves that I really didn't. I didn't want to know what their political views necessarily were. These are people that I knew in real life, and um, my perception of them had started to change. And I was reluctant in that forum to really sort of speak my mind and push back on things because I did know these people in real life from all sorts of circles. And so I ultimately came to the conclusion that I had to rid myself of that. <laughs> um, I, I, I just unplugged from Facebook completely, and I moved my thinking over to Twitter, because I really wanted to discuss political things. I, I really enjoy that, but I didn't want to have to deal with people I knew. Right. <laughs> um, because there's consequences to that, right? right? But it was actually a very liberating thing to, to disengage from that circle. And plus, I liked people better when I didn't see their every thought about, you know, um, you know, by that point, Trump had been elected and, and everybody was freely pontificating on that. And um, I, I just didn't really want to know anymore what, what, what they thought. And so I, um, so that freed me up to um, start expressing my opinions a little bit more fully. But yes, it was scary. I also, I recognized that I was in a unique position where I could do something about it. Um, having been away from practice, for one thing, I, um, well, I, I described this in another podcast as well, as sort of feeling like I was, I had avoided being the frog in the pot because I was jumping back in when I, I could recognize that it was boiling at that point. Um, other people could not, I think. And I was very surprised to see how the profession had changed in my absence. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of how you know women um, felt that they were being treated. Um, I had worked at an all-male firm, by the way, in the 90s, and I did not experience sexism or anything like that, but I, I come back into the profession and suddenly it's just become this horrible sexist place because of the discourse that had shifted over that period of time that I was out. Um, and, you know, that's reflected in some of this stuff too. It's this, it's become this horrible white supremacist uh, patriarchy and, uh, well, you know, I, I didn't see it that way. So do you think, so, there's, but it, do you think there's any truth to those arguments that they're like, what's happening in the workplace is more sexist or racist and, and since, since you last practiced there? Um, because I'm, I'm guessing that it was, it would probably have gotten better since the 90s or the early aughts uh, when you last mm -hmm. practiced. Um, and yet the, the discourse has gotten more and more extremist and, and uncompromising that these are real things. So I, I wanted to know what you think, where do you think that comes from too? And mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's gotten worse in reality? Well, I do think it has. I, th I do think it has because, I mean, I kind of came of age in that um, I'm an older generation X. So, you know, we kind of grew up with that Martin Luther King ideal um, and took it to heart. And I sort of espoused that whole colorblind thing, you know, and when I was in university, I didn't, I didn't really worry about what other skin color somebody had. It was it was irrelevant. And in fact, you know, interestingly, I I um, I came from um, a long background of you know working class farmer types. Um, I'm a fifth generation at best, seventh generation Canadian on some lines. Um, you know, there's like old farmers and Mennonites and things like that in the background. I was the first one in all branches of my family tree to even go to university. Mm -hmm. And um, so I didn't know lawyers. I didn't know um, professionals really uh, on any sort of social level. The um, uh, When I was trying to decide what to do with my life after undergrad, my one of my best friends at the time, who was actually Sri Lankan from my heritage, his dad, he lived in Forest Hill. His dad was a professor at U of T, he was already in law school and he encouraged me to go into it, right? Like, so that was kind of my experience. Um, and then to hear how oppressed people of color were later, it didn't just, it didn't, it didn't fit with my own personal experience in the matter. Now, I mean, I'm not a person of color, so I'm not suggesting that people don't have bad experiences. Um, I often find though that bad experiences are, are um, they happen to everybody. <laughs> And, you know, some people will attribute those bad experiences to having been a woman. They, they got treated that way because they were a woman um, when maybe there was another factor involved. But it's an, it's an easy explanation and, and it kind of feeds a narrative too. So, so um, a lot of women I, I heard when I came back were saying things like, um, you know, I get judged on, uh, people assume that I'm not really a lawyer when I walk into a courtroom. Um, they think I'm the clerk or they think I'm a paralegal or something. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there were people that tried to push me around when I was a young lawyer or made me feel bad. But I, what, what I did was I put my shoulders back, I dressed the part, I walked into a courtroom and I kicked ass. And then, you know, people didn't have any doubt after that. And I, and I never harbored any sort of um, belief that I was lesser than or that people were, were, were picking on me. I just did my job and I worked very well with men. I never had a problem. 
Um, you know, there was the odd time somebody would make a little remark, but uh, you honestly had a little bit of power as a woman too, uh, when you knew that guys were sort of, you know, um, maybe flirting with you a little. It was, there's, there's, a, there's a power that women have in that situation too, which I think we have completely forgotten that we have and don't use. Have you, have you read? <laughs> I'm getting into a whole other discussion area. Yeah. But um, there is a anyway. Uh, just just to wrap up sure. this this little this little thing. Yeah, I, I was surprised when I came back. So so um, seeing the report on which the statement of principles was based, I was quite shocked by the um, first of all the lack of actual evidence, um, which I still thought lawyers were you know kind of interested in in having you know sort of a balance of Hopefully. probabilities at least, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to convince me beyond a reasonable doubt, but just at least give me something. Uh, these were little anecdotes, people kind of saying, well, you know, I was, I, I'm um, of an Asian background and I walked down the hallway and somebody thought I was in tech and not a lawyer, you know, um, is that systemic racism or is that just, you know, somebody just, you know, making a, making a, an assumption that proved to be wrong. And um, I don't know, it, it seemed to me that it was not um, conclusive of anything mm -hmm. and very politically driven. And when you look at the language in it, you, you sort of get the feeling, it wasn't hard to see from my perspective, having been observing this for a number of years and reading into it, researching that I could see that it was a, a product of that sort of um, critical social justice kind of narrative. So, uh, and as in terms of my being able to withstand it, well, I, I recognized I, I could have gone in any direction after homeschooling. I mean, I uh, I really did not intend to live my life in these discrete chapters. It, it just sort of worked out that way. It made sense for me to be home with my kids for a while. Uh, it made sense when I was a professional trial lawyer before that, and I was entirely focused on that, but I'm someone who seems to need to focus on things um, completely. And so I, I don't, I don't, um, split my time very well. Mm. So I, if I had tried to practice law fully while parenting, clearly one would have completely bombed. It was just, that's just the way I am. Right. So, um, so coming back, having only really kind of dabbled in it, I, I could have done anything else with my life. I didn't quite know what else and law seemed like, you know, the best use of my skill set. but I didn't have anything to lose. And I think that drove me as well to say, all right, uh, who, if I don't do something about this, who will? Who else is as well situated as I am? Someone who gets what's going on, someone who um, is, you know, reasonably articulate and motivated and driven. Someone who has time. My uh, my husband was kind enough to let me to, con you know, continue to work on this while he supported the family, which he had done through all that homeschooling years. Um, so I had I didn't have to worry about being canceled. I didn't. I, I really was like the ideal person to come along and do it at that time. And uh, yeah, I kind of worried about the professional consequences, but at some point I went, you know what? Uh, I am much more happy with myself if I am true to, you know, my own beliefs. And I, um, I, if I get canceled from the profession, I can't practice well, I'll find something else to do. So, uh, okay. So then you decided that you, you were set up in a good position to tackle this and to tackle the law society. Um, mm -hmm. How did you move from that and speaking at a local bar association, according to your latest article in uh, New Discourses, which I would recommend everyone read, um, to gathering other people and and creating a movement and and a website and convincing other people. Where did you make that jump from you as an individual to starting a movement? Well, 
it was a, it was a process and I wasn't doing it as an individual for very long because after I spoke up at that meeting, it was shortly thereafter that a few others reached out to me and said, listen, we should have a meeting. Um, there's a couple of senior lawyers in town that, uh, uh, we're at that meeting and liked what I had to say and felt the same way and said, let's get together. They worked in the same office. Let's get together and have a meeting and talk about what we can do. And so that was the genesis of it. Um, so then we were, uh, you know, after a few meetings of, of banding ideas about, about, we thought we could maybe try to set out to educate the profession on what was going on because we had all kind of done a bit of a deep dive into it and at that point and and figured that most people hadn't and, and maybe we could just kind of move the needle a bit by just telling people what what this was really all about in our view so that brought about this, the the website someone cleverly uh, coined it stop stop which sounded corny at the time but it really uh, it kind of became it did become a um a movement in the end uh so but it was a gradual process we didn't set out at the start knowing exactly where we were going to end up but um and, and to be honest i mean uh, you know we, we did pull in other people as well. It wasn't just the London contingent. We pulled in um, others who had been writing on the subject, Bruce Party uh, and Jared Brown, who had spoken up with Jordan Peterson on a video. I reached out to them. I'm, I'm pretty good at, at building teams, I guess. Uh, so I, I I pulled in people as I thought that they might contribute. And uh, uh, Murray Klippenstein came on pretty early because uh, he, he'd reached out to um, somebody on our team and yeah when we put the website up he reached out and we just started building it gradually and gradually and and um i i personally didn't know that we were going to do the um you know do, do this by an election i i thought we were just going to try and educate people and that would be enough um and i know i don't take credit for being the one who had the brainstorm to uh, to to build a slate that was i'm not even sure who but probably someone on the team said, well, why don't we try to, you know, get people elected in this next election? But I am the person who um, moves things forward. Right. So I recognize what has to get done. I push it along and bit by bit by bit, we just pushed it along until we got um, a successful result in the election. Congratulations on that, by the way. That was so impressive. I was so, I was in France at the time and I saw that I'm like, damn, this is so good to see because the democratic process um, is a viable option and i think it's one that's better than core challenge because you don't you there's more control over the the result of it um anyways um the other question on that was what what was the blowback that you received from other lawyers um against the stop stop campaign what did they try to do to stop the stop stop campaign and how did you respond well, it was what you would expect um, from this smaller contingent of lawyers uh, on, you know, the, the Twitter sphere who, um, you know, went with the let's try and um, make people feel shamed for that position approach. That uh, seems to be the usual fallback. Let's shame people into thinking the way we think. So they certainly tried that. Um, we did uh, received quite a bit of hostility. There were articles written against us, uh, hit pieces in various publications and so on. My thinking at the time, and I'm not sure it's entirely the right answer, but it worked for us. And I, and I do think when you're, when you have people who are not enmeshed in the culture war watching, it's important not to, um, devolve to that level. And so I instructed everybody, um, not to engage on you know in the mudslinging I, I said you know we're on the high road here we're on we're taking a, 
principled position, and I don't think that we should be engaging in the, you know, the um, the nastiness and the, the back and forth swearing and calling people names and you know that's that's not us. We're, we are all we're we're being observed by not only the rest of the profession but the public and. I actually um, am close friends with somebody who watched, she's not a lawyer, but she watched the election very, very closely, very interested in it, and said it was like pulling back the curtain to see what lawyers were really like. Um, she was disgusted and horrified, actually, by what she saw coming at us from the other side. And she wanted to, uh, you know, she needed a lawyer at one point to work on her parents' estate. And she, she said to the prospective lawyer, what's your view on the SOP? Because, because for her, she was not going to hire anybody who was who was going to um, be on the side of coerced statement of principles. So, um, which is interesting because I wonder how many more of the public would feel the same way if they if they actually knew what what the issues really were. Um, but yeah, I mean, they certainly tried uh, to 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 sh shoot us down, and um, I think there were there were a lot of people watching, and not everybody felt comfortable speaking up. And you know, and quietly in in their uh, in the privacy of their office, when it came time to vote, they they voted for for not having a compelled statement of principles. Right, right. Um, okay. And how did you? So you you didn't go onto social media and mudsling and join the mudslinging, but mm -hmm. you did get your message out. Um, how did you do that? And who was your who are you trying to reach? I know you. I know you had. You were reaching the public just because. Well, Jordan Peterson. That's how I found out about this issue. But my experience with um, very intolerant people is that you just have to be intolerant yourself. Um, otherwise, they'll run over you. And yet here you are. It's not that you're being intolerant yourself, but you just decided to play at a higher level than they did, and it seemed to work. Um, so I'm guessing I'm trying to, I'm just trying to figure out how you won in the first place. That's what I'm really trying to figure mm -hmm. out and strategy, um, for dealing with the shaming and stuff. It ended up working. So how did you get your, your message out? Okay. Well, I mean, obviously it was the lawyers in the province that were going to be voting. So they were the ones that were our primary uh, target. And we knew that most of them weren't on social media. I mean, lawyers are busy um, typically and, and uh, aren't paying attention to a lot of this stuff. And just like most people in the world, I, I think it's honestly a fairly small number who are truly uh, paying attention to the culture war. It feels like a lot when you're on Twitter, but, um, and I think people have, you know, some unsettled feelings about maybe where things are all going, but not everybody is, is focused on it to the same degree. And certainly that's the same in the profession too. So we didn't want to kind of come at them right out of the gates with, you know, um, this is some postmodernist neo-Marxist ploy to, you know, I mean, like they, they would have just dismissed us right off the bat. We had to start with a gradual uh, process of, in, of getting them up to speed on, on what the rest of us had started to figure out. Um, so we did a series of basically of newsletters, um, which I put together, but with the help of others on the team. Um, and you know, we talked about the compelled speech aspect first because that's what most people could kind of recognize as being the initial problem. And, um, you know, gradually, and we talked about um, our role as 
and as lawyers acting in the public interest, you know, what, what is our responsibility? Is it to our regulator to, um, to have particular values or is it to fight fearlessly for our clients? And sometimes that would mean run afoul of those particular val uh, values, right? Because not everybody in society holds them and, and you know, we, we do still provide defenses to people who aren't, you know, conforming. And there were all sorts of um, practical issues with, with it that I, I certainly saw. I mean, look at the word inclusion, for example. You know, uh, does that if you if you subscribe to that and you're uh, expected to um, promote and uphold inclusion, well, how is that defined? What is the law society, law society expecting of you? And so, does it mean that? Um, so, for example, you could not act for a Megan Murphy who is um, trying to exclude um, male-bodied, trans-identifying people from women's change rooms, for example, because that's not very inclusive. Um, how much do we have to include? And are you allowed to take a counter position? Are you allowed to act for somebody who takes a counter position? And I was concerned that no, you wouldn't be. Um, so anyways, so we tried to identify some of the practical issues for lawyers that they could grasp right off the bat, and then gradually kind of turned up the temperature and started to show a little bit more of the culture war stuff. I think probably a lot were, you know, to some degree aware that that uh, with the mailings that we sent out. Um, I, at one point I, I highlighted um, uh, Vaclav Havel's paper, The Power of the Powerless, and how the, I, I said the statement of principles is like, it's akin to that, um, the green grocer putting the sign in his window saying, workers of the world unite. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that you are being obedient to your superiors, which is the law society. And it's a symbol to the to others that you uh, hold the appropriate moral values. And uh, I don't think that the law society should be in the business of of making people, you know, uh, attest to certain or mouth certain, um, you know, uh, statements like that 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 have a lot of political import. Anyway, uh, we sort of took that took that message out. Uh, I was on the receiving end of all the uh, emails that came back. And many of them were filled with hate and vitriol, and we, you know, took them off our mailing list, <laughs> winnowed it down. Um, anyways, yeah. I, how did, so, how did you build a mailing list, by the way? Were this were these just people going onto your website and typing in their emails, or, or what? Well, you see, the law society we had to play. Uh, we had to we had to um, do things a little differently. The law society, if you paid, if you were going to run as venture, if you paid a certain amount of money, they would give you the uh, or actually no, they would send your emails out to the profession uh, on your behalf. Okay, to those who had checked the box saying that they would, they were willing to receive materials. Um, so, but it was within the control of the law society to send your stuff out, your your campaign materials if you were running for venture. Well, we figured, yeah, right, they're not going to send our stuff out. <laughs> so, uh, pretty clearly. So, uh, we did manage to to sort of scrape from the internet the um, the emails from like that are publicly on uh, law firms' websites. Right. Um, and so from that, we had like 30,000 emails and they weren't all correct. And there was a lot of calling that had to happen. Um, I think by the end, I don't know how many, maybe I was sending out to 15 or 20,000 people by the end. Uh, yeah, and about 5,000 voted um, in the election or voted for our people in the election. Right. What, what percentage of the emails that you got? So there's a total number of emails that you sent out and then mm -hmm. what percentage of that came back with um, hate um, towards you and, and disgust? 
Uh, a lot. Uh, I don't know the numbers offhand. Um, a lot of times the unsubscribe wasn't enough. They would have to send a little nasty message too. <laughs> I mean, I should have counted them up. There were a lot. I will I will tell you there were a lot. Okay. Uh, and, and they weren't very nice to me. But again, I was developing a very thick skin by that point. And uh, uh, it was, you know, it was, it was not bothering me too much. But, okay. Yeah. I mean, at one point we were accused of being akin to the types of people who would shoot up a mosque uh, in Christchurch. Mm. And it was that kind of stuff. And that was actually by us, a lawyer, um, you know, they, their names were on this, right? You can see who it was. And so somebody local, and I, I emailed them and said, look, I'm not the devil. Do you want to have coffee? And I'll tell you, you know, why I, why I view the world the way I do. I, I you know, uh, and he, he kind of backed off. His response to me was was less hostile once he could see that it was a real person on the other end of this, right? Yeah. Uh, he declined. He declined to get together for coffee, but um um, and then kind of backtracked and said, yeah, I do know some good people who, uh, who are on your side. And it's like, okay, well then, you know, why would you say stuff like that? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like we're humans We're we should have like, take us, understand where we're coming from. And, and then maybe, maybe we can find some, some meeting place. But if you just start off with that kind of vitriol, you know, you're never going to come to any, uh, understanding of one another, but anyways, that, yeah, that was, that was what we had to deal with. And okay. eventually, um, our, our mailing list got winnowed down to some, some hardcore supporters and, uh, and those are who we still communicate with sometimes. And, and so, so, so my big question then is what was the strategy that you used for dealing with hateful or, um, with people who really disagreed with the stop stop movement it sounds like with some people you just ignore them um, mm-hmm. and other people you reached out and you sent them a message letting reminding them that you were also human and that you weren't actually e- evil um, were there any other things that you did um, to help curb the uh, extreme rhetoric from the other side and I bet that- um, not really I mean that was those were sort of the options I and mean, for most of these people you aren't going to convince them if they're that extreme in their views, they aren't going to come around necessarily. They they have um, staked their their position and um, don't want they, they don't want to hear yours. If they're that if they're that aggressive towards you, they are not interested in dialogue. Um, obviously, we wrote articles and we put out you know uh, more public um, statements and and positions and I don't know like we had tons of stuff on the website. If anybody wanted to come see it, they could they could learn all about our position in depth. Um, but yeah, beyond, beyond that, those couple of strategies, and I didn't write to very many people directly. I mean, a few times where there was an opening and I kind of felt up to it, I, I, I'd write them a note back. Um, it didn't usually lead anywhere productive. Mm. Um, so ignoring was seemed, seemed to be the best strategy. Okay. Okay. Were you able to pursue anyone that the statement of principles was wrong when they thought before that it was a good thing? Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I do think that our, our emails opened some people's eyes to what was going on. I don't know whether it convinced people who had already made up their mind it was a good thing. Well, like, actually, there's one. I, I was at a, a law, like a bar association meeting one time, and I did actually have a chat with one fellow that I, I managed to change his mind. Wow. Um, so maybe one. But I don't think he was too committed to the cause beforehand. So. Got you. Got you. Okay. So I guess then what really worked was getting that mailing list of people who supported um, the Stop Sop movement um, mm-hmm. and getting your voice out. 
as well to let other people know that you were there. Another important thing that I think you did was set up a website with lawyers who supported the Stop Stop movement publicly so that they knew that they so that other lawyers knew that they weren't alone um, in this fight against that. Um, mm-hmm. Did you find that there was uh, that people were really afraid to join that list or or and did mm-hmm. you find that other people found it really helpful? Well, both. Um, there were, you, you know, we, when something like this, I think this is why it was so important to be, you know, to, to stand up at that meeting and speak. Um, because I think this would have just, honestly, um, it just took that one person to, to sort of stand up and, and say something for a whole bunch of other things to happen. Um, would they have happened otherwise? I mean, you know, there were, and I wasn't the only one. I mean, Bruce Party wrote an excellent article in the National Post in the fall of 2017, and of course, it was that video you saw with, with Jordan Peterson. I don't know that that would have translated into action necessarily, um, but helping people to recognize that they, if, if they were concerned about it, that they, they weren't the only one was really critical. People have to know they're not alone. And I think, uh, um, so having that list up there showed that, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only nut bar out there who isn't going along with the program, um, but, we did at first give people the option of expressing their support for us, but doing so anonymously. And there were probably a third of the names were anonymous and then they gave their, their location. And eventually I realized, you know, this isn't going to help. I mean, yeah, it's nice to show that we have supporters, but it, it doesn't help it build courage to show people listed as anonymous. So I took those out um, and it went up down the list quite a lot. And, uh, but I know that there were a lot of people because I got a ton of emails that were also very positive. I, it wasn't just hate mail. There were a lot of people who wrote sometimes very passionate, eloquent emails filled with gratitude that somebody was standing up because they couldn't, because they had, you know, they were maybe on a bay, in a Bay Street firm where the whole machine was just geared towards this EDI ideology, and then then you know they have a lot of management level people, right? Like the sort of not lawyers, but administrators that, that tell you, you have to, you're going to sign the statement of principles or, you know, it's a consequence here in the firm. I mean, those people uh, really could not rock the boat. And if they had kids to support or whatever, they really felt like they, like they just, they, there was too much at stake for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were grateful for somebody else to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, there were a number of people too who felt that it was really quite an existential thing. They, they could not practice law if they had to do that, if they had to swear a statement of principles against their conscience. And um, um, yeah, so we heard from those those people too, and that kept us actually going. I printed off a lot of those along the way, and I read them over when I felt like beaten down, and and they kept me going. I knew I wasn't just doing it for myself; I was doing it for other people. Right. That that was something that came up in my interview with. Candace Malcolm, she said that when she was facing death threats for investigating Khalistani terrorism and extremism in Canada, um, you know, she got a lot of messages from moderate Sikhs who were just saying thank you to her for speaking out publicly against this because they were not in a, they, they, they faced more precarious situations, a uh, more precarious situation than she did. Um, and you just really needed someone else to do that. But I do also want to ask you, um, what do you think about the people who message you privately thanking you but aren't willing to support you publicly? Because, so 
it's true. People have families, they have careers, they can't just throw that all away, um, taking a chance, fighting a movement which is going through the law profession. And I don't understand that completely because I don't have family of my own and I don't have a situation where I have a big career like this. But at the same time, I think that people's it's great that we have anonymous voting, right? Where you're not, where your choices aren't public. But I think that part of the issue is that people who are these anonymous supporters of, of counter-cultural movements, let's call them, um, if you're standing up against political correctness quietly um, in the ballot box alone, then you're not making that... It's... It looks like there is more support for the statement of principles or for a for an equity um, push than there actually is in reality. Um, do you mm-hmm. think that it's important that you have more people standing up publicly against this, or does it really only matter at the ballot box? Okay, well, I do think it's important that people stand up, um, and I'm encouraging lots of people to do so. However, the risks and the stakes are much greater all the time. And as we watch people getting picked off one by one in society for taking a contrary position to anything, um, you know, I, I don't blame them for staying quiet. Really, you know, it's your livelihood. Um, and it's your, uh, it, it goes deep into your psyche too, that feeling of being canceled, right? I mean, you are, uh, we are, we are creatures that are, um, designed for social approval. We need it. Um, it you know, obviously it harkens back to our, our, our tribal days where you know, being cast out of the tribe would be death. You can't survive without your tribe, right? So um, it, it's just it's hardwired into us. And so it's extremely hard for people to rock the boat. Um, and while it would be nice if there was sort of a mass standing up all of a sudden, I would love to see that, but I don't think it's going to happen. I, I have no confidence that it's ever going to happen. So I think um, while this particular movement was successful, and it was successful to a degree, and I, you know, I, I should talk about that a little bit too, because while while we won, uh, it, you know, every single one of our 22 lawyers that was on the slate to, I'm not even sure. I hope your listeners actually know what this is all about. But the uh, um, they do the law society was, was hmm? sorry. Uh, they do. I'm, I'm sure that they do because I spoke about it with Ryan last Ryan? Yeah. last episode, and if they don't they will be able to look it up um, and I'll right. do a little blurb at the beginning too. So don't worry about that. Okay, perfect. But the, um, um, the success is, is moderated by the fact that although we had 22 lawyers elected on our slate, our entire slate of lawyers, uh, the, that was not a majority. And so it's a constant pitched battle within the law society right now to get anything done right and to push back against this illiberalism that is that has taken over the law society um i have to say i'm so so proud of the uh, individuals that came forward to be on the slate because that takes guts it really does and they have been uh, and most of them are not big firm lawyers these are small lawyers for whom um you know it's there's a real financial cost too to being this committed to to working in the law society it sort of used to be and um until we came along like a plum posting, right? And, and oftentimes if you were from um, a big Bay Street firm, your time spent on venture stuff, which is quite substantial, would be compensated. You know, you get points in your pay structure for your efforts in, in 
being a venture. So, you know, there wasn't quite the financial cost. Well, if you're a, a sole or small practitioner, small firm practitioner, and, you know, this is cutting into your billable time, it's cutting into your, um, into your ability to earn a living. So they, they are all people of principle who have stood up to this and, and are weathering quite a lot of abuse because that's the, that is what the other side has is abuse. And, you know, the, uh, constant efforts to malign and undermine and, and call them dinosaurs or dismiss them entirely, you know, um, and they, so they really are up against uh, a juggernaut here. And it, you know, so I, my hat is off to all of them for, for sticking with it. And while when I put the slate together, I was not asking anybody to be ideologically aligned on anything else. I said, you know, I don't care what your opinions are on everything else. I, it's irrelevant. All we want are people who are interested in getting rid of the compelled statement of principles. Um, and so as a result, we actually had a very diverse group of people in this, in, in what I believe to be the true and, 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 and important sense of the word. You know, we had somebody who had run for the Green Party, somebody who'd run for the NDP in, a, in, in his younger years, and uh, somebody who'd run for Conservatives, someone who'd run for um, PPC, you know, so we were covering the political spectrum um, and ideological spectrum. Um, and uh, I was not expecting that the, the group would continue to work together beyond getting rid of the statement of principles, but they, but they have. I mean, they're, they're free agents. They, they can vote and decide things on their conscience, they, and, and they have. They have not all voted as a block on every single issue. But on the big issues, they're still quite unified, and it's, it's lovely to see. But they're at a disadvantage because they are... Um, they're a minority uh, on, on the, the board, right. the convocation, because there are, I think, 53 votes, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, anything they want to get done is a battle. Um, and so, yeah, we, could, we can get more on the slate next time, but I can assure you that now that this has become political in the Law Society, which, by the way, is a regulatory body and not one that should be political at all, now, people will blame the stop stop slate for politicizing it by coming in with a slate, but we were a reaction to a politicization process that occurred. That's, you know, that's my view, and, and I think it's right. Um, when the Law Society went down this road and stopped regulating lawyers' conduct, you know, doing its job, which is constrained by the Law Society Act, which says what, what their mandate is, when they started going off on all the social engineering stuff and identity politics and um, forcing compelled, you know, uh, values. Well, uh, that was politicizing the, the law society. And having now done that, having dealt with the um, suffered the consequence, which is a slate coming in that has a different political view. I know that the next election is likely going to be equally political. And hereafter, I mean, we'll, we'll be looking at uh, a slate on the other side coming. They have a demand inclusion group that's on the other side that they're they're probably busy building their slate right now too. So maybe we'll get another group in uh, on our side next time, but maybe not. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so so you end up in this this interminable battle uh, between political views in an institution that is not supposed to be political, and we're seeing this in many other institutions. And so while what our what we did is replicable, I think in other places, maybe on the school board or other institutions. It's not sustainable unless you want to politicize these things and have little mini power um, battles going on perpetually. Um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think that that is the answer to how we um, deal with this long term. So how, you're ruining these institutions. So how do you think we get out of that that loop of power battles where 
everything becomes politicized? Uh, well, I'm not sure that we can anymore. Now that the personal has become political and, and everybody is uh, sort of having to stake a, a position now, and um, I, I don't think that we can get away from it very easily. Um, I'm concerned that um, most of these institutions, now the Law Society here had a little bit of a reprieve with, with our group coming in, but again, I don't know if it's sustainable. Um, most of these institutions are so dominated now by um, sort of left-leaning activists that, and they pick off any individual who comes in who has a different opinion. I mean, they're, they're not lasting, right? If you, if you are, um, you just see it in the, in the news every day, right? What, um, there was a, just in Alberta a couple weeks ago, there was a, a lawyer who has a distinguished record um, of involvement in the community and in the law and uh, who who made some remarks about, I, I think it had to do with Black Lives Matter. Uh, and he was removed by his law society from, a, I think it was a judicial appointments committee for his intemperate views um, or inappropriate views. Now, he's an Aboriginal uh, lawyer actually and has done a lot of work in that area but that didn't save him he doesn't have the right political views and so as a result he's picked off and so eventually these committees you know if that was a, if that was the judicial appointment committee and i could be wrong but i think that's what it was you know there is another way where the ideology um, is dictating who gets to be in that power position of selecting judges who then shape our society because their role has become has become more dominant and great so um, uh, how do we get past that politicization? I, I don't know that we can, because when you do have a conservative or classical liberal or libertarian voice speaking up, they're, they are so dominated now they just get picked off. So I'm kind of inclined to think that the better approach, and again, this is not easy uh, by any means, but it may ultimately have to be um, uh, separate civil society institutions that, um, you know that that are that are dominated by people who subscribe to more liberal values, those classical liberal values. Now, the danger in that, of course, is is um, well. First of all, assuming you can make it happen, is we who have those classical liberal values tend to be inclusive, truly inclusive of other views, and then you know the process can repeat itself. And yeah. you allow in the <laughs> we let anybody in, and before you know it, we're overtaken again. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of things need to be sorted out. And, and it's not easy, but I, you know, Leonid Sirota is a, a professor of law who has a blog uh, and, and was very much against the statement of principles because he comes from a libertarian perspective. And, he, and he, he has written about this. I had had a similar thought when I was trying to think about what we could do and assuming that we lost the law society battle, I was thinking about how do you, how do you get around a, a regulator that has become political? Are there ways to take it down? You know, take down the whole regulator, like get rid of it. If, if it can't, if it's going to be political, it doesn't, it's not doing its job. And uh, um, so, so there are, you know, a number of people thinking along these lines, you do need some political, um, like the, the political will to actually make this happen. But maybe we have to go back to having little guilds or something, you know, where this is the woke guild over here and you can have all the statements of principles you want and go crazy, right? And, and, uh, and then over here we'll have the normal people or, you know, the ones who believe in um, 
merit and competence, and those will be the only you know the only things that will regulate are your competence to be a lawyer, right? And, and um, that and, that I I'm so glad you brought this up because this was exactly where I was going to go next when I was when I spoke with Mr. Hanvarsky last episode. He also suggested that we should just it's time we just start our own society and and mm -hmm. just disassociate from that. So you think so when it. So I want to ask you about your opinions on this for the law society as well as schooling and education because you've homeschooled mm -hmm. before. Um, so with law societies, do you think it's possible to um, dismantle the Ontario Law Association and in its place put up like two two bars or not bars two 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 associations one for for woke people and the other for liberal people and you yeah. can you can select your lawyer on the basis of that whether you think the woke people are more more competent or the liberal and and that way both people you can have your cake and eat it too you get to choose mm -hmm. the the law society that you want to be a part of uh, customers get to choose uh the lawyers that they want representing them and at the same time it seems like you are avoiding this um this debate and power struggle between two opposing views that don't really seem to be able to be reconciled other than just through a culture war. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that is where it may have to go. Getting there will probably involve a few more elections where it just becomes painfully clear finally to people who can actually do something about it that this, you know, we simply cannot live together. There has to be a divorce because we're not going to get anything done otherwise. Um, but I, I don't think that that realization is quite there yet. Um, you know, I, I, maybe they view this as an anomaly. I, I view this as the, the, you know, the stop, stop movement as, um, it, you know, that will be, um, it will portend the future. Like this will be what we have to deal with in every election now going forward until we do have that divorce, um, I think, or until, you know, maybe the whole um, woke um, critical social justice um, movement will peter out, but I doubt it. I, I don't. I don't think that's. I think it's. It's. Um, it's got a great deal of power behind it right now, and uh, it potentially very ugly things will follow um, if it continues on its path. And uh, um, you know, maybe splitting up the law society will be the least of our worries uh, down the line. But, but I think that that may be. Um, you know, the political will probably isn't there now, but maybe it will be if if this continues to be the, the path. But, you know, so that one does require political will, but not every alternate institution requires that. Um, you know, we, we are governed by uh, legislation, so so we're kind of at the mercy of the government to, to, to split things up. But, but so, for example, alternative educational options are not quite uh, controlled that way. So there's nothing stopping people from setting up alternate universities, alternate um, you know, private education systems or taking your kids out of schools entirely to homeschool. So education is an area where we could uh, feasibly develop um, an alternate path. Um, and I think it's really important that we start doing so. I have been for a number of years now a little bit frustrated with these sort of non-woke types. I don't, I, I don't want to say conservatives because it encompasses much more than that. I would not have considered myself conservative. I sort of been maybe pushed there, but I, I, I didn't ever feel comfortable fully as a conservative. Um, so I, I would consider myself more classical liberal, but you know, there's a broad tent there of people who are not in that woke category. Um, and for years now, I've gone to conferences, I've listened to podcasts from the sort of IDW types and so on. 
maybe that's starting to change a little, but um, for the longest time, it was just all about the problem and nobody was talking about the solution. I, you know, I, I went to um, one uh, Society for Academic Freedom um, conference mm -hmm. a couple years ago and, and Gad Sad was the guest speaker. And, uh, you know, he, he had, he spoke at length about the problem. And I felt very unsatisfied at the end of it all, because if anybody had been following Gad for the last couple of years before that, you know, he's been identifying it clearly. We all know what it is. And certainly most of the people in the room at a Society for Academic Freedom conference where pr pretty much everybody's there because they have been picked off uh, or suffered consequences to their scholarship because of not fitting, you know, the, the woke ideology. Um, they must all recognize the problem too. So when are we going to start talking about solutions? And I'm not trying to pick on them, um, particularly because I see this everywhere. Um, so, so we need to adjust our, our thinking. We all kind of get what the problem is now. We can spend from here until time immemorial pointing out, you know, another example of crazy, but, um, and, and watching people get picked off one by one and in whatever sphere that they're in. Uh, but we need to be moving towards alternate um, institutions. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of people give a lot of money to universities. And I'm sure if some of them were more um, aware of, and maybe they are, of how, um, how bad things are in, on many campuses in terms of ideological uh, capture, you know, maybe that money could be directed to something else, but you need to have, you need to have somebody actually start the process. And I know Jordan Peterson was talking about it at one point, and then I, I don't know where, where it went, but I think he just needs somebody to step up and say, all right, um, you know, we're going to develop an institution that uh, subscribes to those values of, you know, the pursuit of reason and, and enlightenment values and science as a tool towards the search for truth and, and you know, it's not going to tell you what to believe. It's going to give you the tools to, to, you know, the sort of classical um, approach to discovery of, of what truth is, rather than being told, here are your values, <laughs> here's your truth, and uh, everything will be fed. Everything that you learn will be uh, reinforcing that exact, you know, viewpoint. Right. Um, that, that, that is completely not what education should be. So we kind of need to return to what the model should be and, and set something up. And it needs to happen soon because my other view uh, th thinking on this is that um, most people are not really um, thoughtful about their beliefs. Uh, a lot of people just kind of are born into them or, you know, are more comfortable when they're told what they are. Um, you know, that sort of um, deontological approach, right? Where rules-based, what are the rules I have to follow? Okay, well, here's a Bible that tells you a bunch of rules. You might follow those rules, or here's a Quran. There's some rules there, or, or here's social justice ideology. There's a bunch of rules. Um, what do I have to believe? What do I have to follow? What do I have to do to, to live my best life? Um, and I don't sense that there are a lot of people who, um, who really spend a lot of time thinking through um, their own morality, their own value system. I think it's a maybe in the circles that we're in on, um, you know, in the chattering classes or education, you know, you see more people who, who do that. But the average person is kind of, it's not that they're not capable of it, but the average person is going through their lives 
in just trying to exist from day to day. They're trying to pay the bills. They're trying to raise their kids. They're trying to get to all the activities or to just to cope. I mean, and, and there's a huge, huge swath of the population that is that is literally living on the knife's edge. Like, you know, one paycheck gone and, you know, life's a mess. And those people don't have the luxury of sitting around thinking about issues. And, not, and a lot of people are not uh, constituted in such a way that they, that, that that's kind of within reach for them to really explore all of that. So they need, they need to sort of, um, a lot of people need to be kind of told. <laughs> but um, I think the better approach is to sort of have a choice, right? Like you can choose, well, which, which, um, you know, which rule book fits best for me? What, you know, whether that's following Christianity or whether that's following um, Islam or whether it's following the social justice thing, you, you need to know what the options are. And if you want to subscribe to something, um, you know, it's, it's helpful if there is an example out there of what that looks like. You can go to the church, you can go to the university and pick up the social justice ideology. But where are you going to pick up the classical liberal values anymore? Because where, where is that being taught or told or shared anymore? And I think that's kind of where I'm coming to. Like you, you need to have, you need to be able to show people what this, what liberty really is all about anymore. And um, because they're not seeing it, they're not, they're not seeing examples of it in our society anymore. Mm -hmm. So if you had some sort of alternate um, educational system from K to 12 through to post-secondary, you'd have the opportunity to get those viewpoints out into the mainstream a little bit more where people have that option to opt into as well. So it's not just, I'm hearing a lot of people right now, um, and I think you were talking about this with Ryan in your, in your chat as well, where you know you, you don't subscribe to those social justice values, so maybe Christianity doesn't look so bad after all. There's that religion, which is really unredeeming, yes, right? Yes. And so, and so um, you know, and there's no forgiveness and it's just horrible. But over here, Christianity is now looking all right. <laughs> yeah, and that's great. Yeah. If, you know, if that's if that's your cup of tea. Hey, you know, go for it. And and there's a, there are a lot of redeeming things about it. But I don't think those should be the only choices. I don't think that they should be the only choices. And I think, you know, um, having the ultimate freedom to to choose your own path that is what the liberal project is all about. Being unconstrained to well. That's not the right word. You um, being um, unforced, I suppose. You know, you can you can choose your own path um, and, and figure out your own morality. You, you do your develop your own virtues without somebody else telling you uh, what they should be. Now, I mean, Christianity um, doesn't have to be oppressive, and it, it it isn't too much in most cases now. But it has a history of that, and it can be too. And so I'm also leery of saying, well, that's what we should let back into the state, right? Like, you know, there's there's a talk right now about integralism, this this notion of yeah. bringing you know Catholic faith back into the state, yeah. right? Adrian Vermeule's like, okay. essay in the Atlantic, where he argued that there should no longer be a separation of powers, that the people who should be ruling are like Catholic leaders, and and we should have a theocracy, and the people and for our immigration. Um, for our immigration system, we should prioritize Catholics, and the other ones can literally go to hell. Uh, right. it, it's it's so odd to be reading this in two thousand and twenty, like where this is published in the Atlantic. Um, but you know, if I had to choose between 
um, someone like a radical Catholic and a radical SJW, I would choose the radical Catholic now because like, at least there they have redemption and at least there they are open to reason. Um, not, not really. They're not really open to reason. No, they're not really. Um, and, you know, we've sort of tried that in the past, right? Having, having, uh, you know, Catholicism rule the day um, or, or other religious um, doctrines rule the day. And, and they, you know, they don't belong, I don't think, as as part of the state. And, and I know other people um, will differ on this view, but I believe that the state really does need to be as neutral as possible. And I, I don't, you know, it's it's all well and good when it's your morality that is the morality that is, you know, um, that the state is enforcing. But as we can see with the social justice thing, well, it's not very nice when, when it isn't, when the state is now starting to enforce social justice ideology, mm-hmm. Um, you get a taste of how um, oppressive a government can be when it steps out of that neutral space and, and starts pushing one view or another. And I, and I think it could be equally bad with, with the, the uh, Catholic integralism idea. Right. I, you know, I, I kind of disagree with you there because I think um, this... Okay, so to be 100% clear, the state absolutely should not espouse a particular religious viewpoint. I think it should be pretty polit- uh, religiously neutral. Um, but... Um, I don't know if you follow Camille Paglia a lot, but I like her argument. And her argument is that in education systems, we should be introducing uh, students to the great religions of the West, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and their ideas, not only because they form such a big part of our cultural history, um, but also because, you know, it'll allow you to speak, edu- uh, speak um, it'll allow you, it allows you to speak um, educatively, that's not the word I'm looking for, but uh, intelligently. It allows you to speak intelligently about these movements that are going on, what's happening in uh, Saudi Arabia, whether you think it's right or not. You don't get these erroneous ideas of Islamophobia simply being criticism of Islam. Um, and at the same time, it introduces a path to religious thought um, that otherwise wouldn't exist. Even if we consider Christianity and Islam and Judaism to be myths that are not um, true in a scientific sense, I think it would still be better because th- this this push for dogma that exists in like the human spirit, I don't think we're going to get rid of it. And the issue that I have with liberalism there, even though I really appreciate um, state neutrality, is that they don't have something to replace that push for religious dogma. They don't have meaning that comes from secular humanism it needs to be replaced with mythology and story and art and music and we haven't done a good job at at doing that and 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 the worst part is that if you do not provide that um, mythological basis for understanding the rest of western civilization you end up with these political ideologies and movements which are just much worse because because you turn you start to turn politics into a religion when you don't have a religion of your own and i think that i do not think that school should be pushing kids to go into a particular religion but i think that they should be introducing all of the religions and their main stories in in schools so that people understand um what religions are and what the appropriate uh parameters of religion should be how you should act in a religious manner because it's not good to be um a a an ideologue it's better to be 
um, uh, I just think it's better to be a, a Catholic than it is to be a social justice warrior, which is a, mm-hmm. sorry, continue. Well, yeah, no, it's, I, I don't disagree with you, actually. I don't think we, we disagree. I don't, um, all of those are tools that can be used, which, <clears throat> I mean, let's go back to morality for a second. And I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I just want to say I'm a dilettante. I, I, I read a little bit of a lot of different things, but I'm not an expert on, on, on uh, political philosophy by any means. Um, but, you know, people develop their morality in a few different ways. One is, as I mentioned, that sort of deontological approach where you're sort of told what the rules are to follow. And it doesn't sort of matter what the consequences are. Those are the rules. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. No. And, and some of those are very good rules, by the way. Um, but those are, uh, that's a morality that's, that's a choice that you make too. Um, and then you have, um, you know, the sort of utilitarian or consequentialist approach, which is, um, you know, what, well, what, are the, what will the impact be? What will be the greatest my morality is dependent on what would be the benefit for the greatest number of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously there's lots of problems with that. I mean, you know, the simple, simple example is your, you know, your person who uh, um, is perfectly healthy, but there are five people who all need an organ transplant to live. And, and so you, you know, uh, it's to the greater benefit, obviously, to, to take the, the healthy person's organs and split them around between those five. So five people can live instead of one. I mean, obviously, that kind of thinking is um, is not perfect either. But uh, the other way is to kind of arrive at your own morality, your own ethics through your own processes. And to do that, you know, you need to be kind of a thinking individual, a person who reflects and learns and, and grows, um, struggles, because I honestly do think that struggle is what gets you to the next level of, uh, of understanding your own values. Uh, it doesn't happen. Right. So, um, so I, I think that providing all of those tools through a well-rounded education is a great start to developing your own virtue ethics, your own, your own sense of um, what, you know, your morality is. And, and so I don't think that the government has a role to play in deciding what your morality is. Um, and, you know, when I was listening to Kaylin Ford the other, on, on one of your earlier podcasts, she was kind of suggesting that there was you know, a, a transcendental morality, um, transcendent morality that really should be reflected in, I, I think what she was trying to suggest, sort of a common good conservatism where, where you know, this is, this, these are the morals and, and that's been decided and, um, and, and that's what should be reflected in. And it's sort of that integralism idea, right. I think, right? Where, you, where you're bringing in what are, what are you know, to, to that way of thinking, indisputed um, morals, right? right? And, and I don't I don't agree with that because I'm not sure that we can necessarily all uh, come to terms with what those values are. You know, based on our own experiences, our own backgrounds, our own cultures, um, our own thinking, our own growth as a human being, we may arrive at different at different places. And so I think the state should be as neutral as possible. But yes, we should have the tools, and, and we're not getting those in schools right now. And I would say, coming back again to the education idea, you know. Um, this is a space where we really need people who value, um, you know, a well-educated populace, um, um, the classical, you know, great books, teachings, and so on, which have been so lost, I think, uh, in our mainstream education now, to kind of bring back, you know, develop those. Our forebears of a couple hundred years ago, I think, were far better educated than those of us now today. Yeah. Who, 
who really have an extremely superficial knowledge of, of anything. And in fact, are now discouraged actively from learning anything from the past. I mean, my goodness, are we going to have another year zero kind of idea where we just get rid of everything from before and we start with these, these new social justice ideals? Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's a horrific thought, to be honest. And um, so that's why I think homeschooling uh, uh, is one way of, of making sure that the next generation gets a better education, mm-hmm. um, but but I think it needs to be a little bit. There needs to be, um, uh, you know, a broader effort to try and deliver this to as many young people as possible and present that as an alternative for families that really see themselves as having no choice right now but to stick their kids in in public schools, which are becoming quite quite little indoctrination factors, yeah. honestly. So so, what would you? So I want to ask you about that. How would you recommend parents go about making sure their kids are not ideologically indoctrinated at public schools? And the second question I have is for law students who are um, who want to get exposed to these other views, these classical liberal views. How would you recommend that they go on educating themselves? Because in my opinion, I think that the the universities and all of these older institutions are going to be completely nearly completely demolished by the internet because you can find knowledge like never before on it and you can do you can educate yourself if you push yourself hard enough there's the issue of discipline there's the issue of credentialing but i think Mm -hmm. that like if you're already a law student if you go to ubc law and you're only being exposed to you're never being exposed to uh, integralism, for example, I think it would be really interesting to argue about that with mm-hmm. uh, with law professors. Sure. How would you recommend uh, law students go out and educate themselves um, on 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 these classic ideals? Well, I mean, part of the problem, first of all, is that not everybody recognizes that they're in an indoctrination factory, right? Um, I, I don't think that, you know, again, it's the frog in the pot problem. Um, I, a lot of we start with the K to 12 demographic. Uh, I don't think a lot of parents know, or maybe they're starting to learn, but you know what exactly their children are learning in school right now. Um, and it's not every teacher by any means, but it's 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 becoming um, uh, a bigger problem. And you know, I have a case that I'm doing with the, my work with the Justice Center, where we're we're actually going to the Human Rights Tribunal um, because. A, a little girl was told her her gender identity as a girl. We're sort of using the same language thrown back at them. Um, was discriminated against because her teachers told the class that there was no such thing as girls or boys. Um, well, I mean that is radical queer theory. Like, do you really want your kids being taught that there's no such thing as girls and boys? Um, I don't think so. I don't think most parents would would accept that. Um, yeah, and. Uh, so part of the problem is that they aren't aware of what's being taught and most parents don't feel that they have the resources and tools to to do a better job now the pandemic may have been a little bit of a blessing in that people realized that hey i'm you know my kids were around me all the time and i didn't kill them and (laughs) you know it is possible it is possible to be home with my kids all day and 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 for us all to stay sane most of the time yeah um and, and they may have also recognized just how much wasted time there is in school and how much you can accomplish when you do it yourself. Now, um, you know, to be fair, what was being, uh, what the experience was for most families during the pandemic was they were struggling to deal with the school that was still trying to maintain some control over the process and putting parents in the situation of having to deal with, you know, inadequate online learning and um, 
unreasonable expectations from teachers who still wanted to kind of have some, some input on all of this. That isn't real homeschooling. And, um, you know, it actually can be a very liberating process and also a, a far, far better education for kids, especially, you know, if you are introducing uh, wide ranging materials and sort of developing that classical education that, uh, that I was speaking of. Uh, there are a lot of homeschoolers who do that. Um, there are lots of different ways to homeschool, as many as there are families. And so, you know, there's no one right way to do it, which which is, you know, wonderful, actually, because, you know, you um, that is the ultimate freedom. And I and I know that the push will be on soon. It's already starting to rein in homeschooling because it's going to be seen as a threat to the to the ideology. There was already a conference that was supposed to be held um, that way late because of the pandemic, I think, but a conference at Harvard to talk about the evils of homeschooling um, and how it was, how, you know, how it was very bad for children and so on. And you see that and you go, oh, wow, you guys are, you've, you started to realize you're losing your chokehold on education and now you're lashing out and trying to scare people that, that homeschooling is going to destroy your child and it's only being done by people who are abusers and I mean, just absolute nuts stuff. But yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, there are lots of tools out there for parents who want to take that on, and I would highly, highly recommend it. It's not an easy path at all. Uh, and I talk about that in a bit more detail if you'd like, but, um, but it does allow you to um, have a lot more influence over your kid's education and make sure that you, that you are introducing them to the, the values and ideals and, and um, sources that you that they might be missing in school. As for law students, I mean, you know, I'm, I gave a, I went to talk uh, on a panel at a, a law school in March, the beginning of March. And um, so we were talking about things that weren't necessarily politically correct. It was about a case that I'm doing the Justice Center uh, involving a Christian family that was trying to foster children, babies in fact, but were precluded from doing so because they're Christian. And it was thought, no, I, I saw a look of disbelief on your face. It's true. Uh, it's absolutely true that there is a push now on to um, essentially keep Christian families from fostering because they may not be entirely inclusive of potential LGBT kids that might be in their care. Right. Um, so we were having a lively debate on this topic. And I mean, again, we're talking about babies in, in this particular instance, uh, but that still wasn't enough for um, the, the um, children's aid service in question to, to decide that, you know, this family could go ahead. I mean, they just, you know, they just said your values don't align with ours. Anyway, after having this panel discussion on the topic, I, and this was for the Runnymede Society, which is a, um, just a lifeline, I believe, to law students who don't subscribe to the ideology that's uh, the social justice approach to law. Um, they, they get the opportunity to hear other views. And and a lot of students came up to me afterwards and said, I don't get to hear this conversation in my law school classes at all. Um, it, it's just not, it, it's not allowed. It's just not had, you cannot discuss things. You, you can't have a debate about things. So we have a whole generation of law students going out into the world where you're gonna have to advocate for a side uh, on something, right? And that, you know, they, they, they don't even have those, it, it seems to me, basic skills in being able to take a position that is different from maybe what they believe in. I mean, they're, they're not they're not being exposed to other ideas. They're going to be averse to taking on cases. And I'm kind of seeing this honestly with the, the lockdown right now. I'm, I'm actually quite shocked that so few lawyers 
recognize any infringements on their freedoms right now and are willing to go to court and do something about it? Like hardly any. Um, so how do law students get around that? Well, I mean, they should be going to things like Runnymede where they can get a little bit of a, a diverse opinion, even if they don't, even if they tend to be kind of inclined towards the social justice side of things, you know, at least hear that there are other views out there mm -hmm. and inform yourself. Um, but certainly um, there are people you can reach out to uh, in the profession and knowing those of us who were against the SOP is a good place to start. I actually do have a lot of law students who reach out to me on a regular basis for a, a little sanity check. Um, it's true. And, uh, it's, and others, it's so I know, sad, but yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I mean, uh, they can be provided with resources too, that they can read to, um, to round out their, their understanding of what the law is and, and should be, and should, shouldn't be. Um, I know Bruce party has uh, a list of resources. He's happy to provide people as well. Uh, but it's getting harder and there are fewer and fewer professors in law schools who, um, who, you know, would would be of that sort of classical liberal persuasion. So they're not getting um, they're not getting a liberal education. They're getting a an indoctrinated yeah. social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, which came out of the law schools in the U.S. By the way, um, that that's what they're learning about. They're learning to be activists. They're not learning to be lawyers. Um, so it's a very different education than what I had, and I don't think they're being equipped with the right tools. But this is what's happening, and and. You know, as they come out of law school and go into practice, um, uh, they have an influence, and and then they get you know eventually onto the to the bench and become judges, and then they shape our society. So uh, there has to start being an alternate alternative. And it this is again where I, I really feel very strongly it, it all may be lost already, but maybe there's a small chance if we could um, find a way for all those classical liberal types to offer an alternative a meaningful alternative so we can start bringing the balance back a little bit if we don't if we just sit there and let ourselves get picked off left right and center and you know go off into the private sector or you know be in a position where you can't be canceled uh, the the impact to our society more broadly is just it's gonna uh it's gonna be impossible to counter at some point and, and very soon i think yeah um so, so being, you know, culture, um, politics is downstream from culture and we have to be able to, uh, to influence the culture at some point here. And the culture is being dominated by this other discourse. So that's again, where I come back to you. Okay. We, we cannot coexist in the same institutions. We're being, um, shut down, closed off, marginalized, unable to get the views of, across. So you have to kind of step out of that and set up a separate approach where those voices can be heard again. You know, you need to encourage independent press. You need to encourage independent um, educators, independent, um, uh, you know, civic leaders. And, and um, it sounds insurmountable, but I think if you got enough people who were motivated to do that and some money as well, it, it is not impossible. But I think it's, it needs to get done. It, um, it really. Yes, I agree with you. Um, hold on one second. Let me look at my questions. Okay, I, I also wanted to see. Um, so uh, let me just say as well that I completely agree with you about the intellectual dark web and how while they have many critiques of the system, I think they're lacking a bit on a solution and a replacement. I think 
there's this quote criticized by creating from Isaac Morehouse. He is he's someone who was homeschooled and he homeschooled his kids. He's homeschooling his kids and he created this company called Praxis, which is basically a college alternative. Um, it's it's completely different from so you get out of high school, you take the six month boot camp, you learn how to create value in a workplace. Then after this boot camp, you go and work at a startup for six months as an apprenticeship. And 97, 98% of their graduates go on to make $40,000 a year as their starting salary with no student debt compared to like college students getting out of school with like $50,000 a year, a resentment ideology and no job prospects that that require a degree and i think that if we are going to create new institutions the ones that will pop up will look radically different from the older ones because we have new mediums um, to go over like podcasting for example Mm -hmm. it's in china the market for podcasting is seven billion dollars and here in in the u.s we're not in the u.s in the u.s it's about 350 million and one of the things that's happening in china is that um Law, uh, is that professors are actually leaving university to teach on podcasts in a subscription-based model so that if you'd like to learn more about economics or law, you can just subscribe to your favorite professor and you get an education while taking the bus to, 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 to work. So I think that for, for, for the, the future of alternative educations, it's going to have to be different from old um old institutions um, because and because well the old institutions ended up with a particular situation a particular result and I think that result is you know um, political homogeneity the social justice issue there's no reason to think that we can uh, we can just move forward without their permission and to create something and create something new um, based on the internet or something like that I'm just not too sure how that would look like yet, but I think there's going to be a demand for it and there's going to be a supply come up soon. Um, Jordan Peterson had that idea of an online university. I don't think it's going to come to fruition, um, but but there are some cool startups in the environment um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I was homeschooling, um, we, we tapped into a lot of those MOOCs, those massive online, massive open online uh, courses. Um, you know, where like MIT or other institutions provided an opportunity to take a, a university level course from, you know, from your own home. Um, they, they didn't seem to really go um, gangbusters. And I, I, at one point I was kind of noticing all the infrastructure development on our local campus at Western here, thinking, well, why are you building so many buildings? Because, you know, online is the wave of the future. You know, it seems yeah. kind of a ridiculous use of resources. But I do think that people sort of need to come together too um, in person. And so online is adequate to a point, but it is not a complete solution. Right. But I think you can kind of, you know, use it as a bridge to to getting more and more uh, physical campuses. I mean, there have to be opportunities to come together, for, especially if you're in the sciences, to do your labs and, and so on. You can make use of technology for a lot of things um, and they, it would be a good interim measure but I don't know that it's a complete solution. Yeah. I know that with my own kids in homeschooling they did do a lot of online classes and some of them were very very good but uh, you needed to have uh, opportunities for social interaction with, with your peers as well that was in real life mm-hmm. and you know so I, I made sure that happened and I developed uh, on 
you know, community uh, homeschooling based um, social groups and that kind of thing for my kids to have that outlet and discussion groups that happened in our house. We had uh, every two weeks, we had a whole bunch of homeschool kids come over and have philosophy discussions with a guided you know, instructor. Um, you know, those, those in-person experiences are, are critical too. So I don't think you can go entirely online and have a satisfactory replacement, but I do think there's a lot of room for innovation here. Um, and uh, it, there could be a variety of different models that develop, you know, it doesn't have to be one, doesn't have to look like one thing. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, you could find some um, funding to, to start with a small campus that starts to encourage people. And it doesn't even have to be credentialed right off the bat. I mean, I mean, it sort of is, you'll, you'll give them a diploma or a degree. I mean, I, you know, I gave my son a high school diploma um, from Archimedes Advanced Academy, which was the name of our school. You know, it's his high school diploma. It, it counts. Uh, he doesn't show it to anybody. Um, <laughs> You know, if, if employers start to see that people come through uh, an institution, a new institution, that who have critical thinking skills, uh, who are civic-minded, who are, um, you know, rational and not ideologically possessed, and who, uh, who, who you can count on to come into your organization and provide value and not, and not take value, which is, I think, what's happening in a lot of instances when people come in and they stir shit up and they want to, you know, they want to... Um, uh, it kind of destroy the thing from within with their, with their grievances and so on. Um, you know, employers will be chomping at the bit to get graduates like that. And so I think credentialing would follow fairly shortly and, and, and would have some, some value, but you, you just need, you need to have, you need to have uh, a little infrastructure to start with. You need to have, um, you know, an infusion of a small amount of cash. And I mean, I'm thinking like a few million dollars, um, to just get the ball rolling right. and then you know you need to yeah you're going to need some bigger benefactors down the line but if people start to realize that this is important they can make it happen you just need to have somebody willing to roll up their sleeves and get the job done and i know that the the little law society battle is just tiny compared to all the battles that need to happen but i i guess what i i one of the reasons that i am speaking out as much as i am is because i want people to realize that it just takes one person or a few people to decide that you're going to roll up your sleeves and accomplish something for it to happen. But you've got to start there. You, you have to start with the willingness to do something and to stop complaining and to just make it happen. And that's where we're at. It, things need to be made to happen pronto before it's too late. Um, you know, the, I don't think that this is going to peter out. Um, the, the sort of, we, we've seen enough models throughout history, enough examples throughout history of, of this unconstrained leftist thinking. It goes to very dark places when it isn't constrained. The conservative side tends to be the constraining force, right? The one that, that, that kind of provides the balance. And of course, when you pick off all your conservatives, you don't have that internal balance anymore. And so things go too far. Yeah. And, uh, and they, that's where we're going to end up again. So let's, you know, jump ship, let them go off the cliff, try to provide some alternative where we can continue to hold on to some of those important uh, historical lessons, all the, you know, the, the learning that we did on the shoulders of the giants before us, that we're, that those people want to throw out the window, you know, let's, let's find a place to save them, to keep them. We'll be like the monks, you know, from, from the middle ages who are busy transcribing all of the old works to keep them, right? That's our job right now is to find a place to keep those, all of that alive and build on it and continue to move humanity forward. 
um, what, what, what's on offer on the other side is going to take humanity down a very dark path again. And uh, we, we've seen it before. They don't see it. They don't, they don't understand it. They, they, it's this unconstrained idea that you can, all you have to do is have the right system. You have to have the right um, way to mold humanity. They refuse to acknowledge that we kind of are how we are. And the better system is the one that works with that knowledge, not the one that wants to reshape us all, because that isn't going to work. And it's going to end up badly for all of us. Um, that is the difference between, and Thomas Sowell was one, one of the people who pointed this out, that was the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right? The constrained version was the American Revolution, which recognized that humans have certain flaws. And let's find a, a way of, of addressing that in our foundational documents to try and mitigate against those flaws. Now, it hasn't worked perfectly. And, and so... Yeah. Right, but you got to so so yeah, you got to learn from those mistakes and figure out why. You know, there's a great deal of corruption that was allowed to develop in that system, which has not benefited anybody. Corporatism is allowed to flourish. You know, there's a lot of problems, but but we don't throw the whole thing out. We figure out okay, how do we improve that from um, bearing in mind who we are? We, you know, no system is going to work well with humans in it because we are going to perpetually bung up the system with our human nature. It's just the way it is. There's no system that will withstand us uh, perfectly. We, we, we just make a mess of everything. So the French Revolution, of course, was the unconstrained version, where as long as you had some um, magnetic leader to, to you know, lead things, it, it wasn't about the constraining forces. It was, it was very unconstrained, right? It led to a huge amount of unnecessary bloodshed. So... Um, so where am I going with all that? I guess uh, we, we have to sort of recognize and preserve the, um, the institutions that, that, uh, that work in that constrained environment, that understand human nature, it, how it is, um, and you know, protect future generations by ensuring that there is something that can withstand what, whatever the left is going to lead us to, right? Like just some sort of alternate um, space space that, <laughs> that they can't touch and they can't destroy. I don't know. It all sounds like pie in the sky. And, you know, I listened to Ryan and you talk and I, you know, I have great respect for Ryan and I really enjoyed the, the chat. Um, one of the things he said was, I, I think it's time to sort of build our own communities. You can't live with these people anymore with this. I want to get with my friends and build my own, my own city based on values. And it, it all sounded lovely, right? Because, like, of course you could look around and you can say, well, I like you and I like you and I like you and, and I, you know, I agree with what you stand for. Let's all live together and then we won't have all this nonsense to deal with. Um, and I'm sure that what I just said about institutions sounds maybe just as idealistic. I think it's a bit different um, than, than what Brian was suggesting. But I, I, I do see the fly in the ointment with his suggestion, which is that those values are not necessarily heritable. Um, the next generation that lives in your city may not agree. And if, and if his kids are younger, probably mine are older. And I, you know, I did homeschool and I did raise my kids with the values that I wanted them to have. And we did have political discussions around the kitchen table. And I ended up with two kids who couldn't be further apart in political views. So I think a lot of it, frankly, is genetic. And, and that's um, something that we don't recognize in society either, that, that all these people you're condemning uh, because they have the wrong views. 
those might be about as immutable to them as their skin color. You don't know, right? Like I think there's some, some belief maybe that at least part of what, how we view the world is innate to us uh, and may not be necessarily something that uh, if you could only just convince them otherwise, they'd think differently. Because goodness knows I've tried with my own kids and, and <laughs> or at least the one that doesn't agree with me. Right. Um, but, I, you know, so he, he mentioned, Ryan mentioned in the, in the podcast about the Amish and the Orthodox Jews as, as isolated communities that were able to function outside of the mainstream. That if we could only think of ourselves as minorities and move into those little you know, charter cities, I think you call them. Um, you know, we'd solve all the problems, but we don't solve all the problems because we're still humans and we still have these same issues and we will perpetually have these same issues. Right. And by the way, the Amish communities are not necessarily a panacea. They, you know, they use right. a great deal of social control to keep their, their communities whole. Um, if you, if you don't, they also don't let the internet in, by the way, which is, um, you know, if you want to have values stay uniform in a community you can't have that kind of stuff coming in right you're going right. to have to constrain what everybody can learn and see and be exposed to or your kids are going to go off and do whatever right because they'll learn about it on the internet um and you know you'll be shunned if you if you step out of line in some of those uh, insular communities you won't be part of your family anymore if you don't want to subscribe to the totality of the of the values that, that the community upholds and there are splinters, you know, they go off and they have like, there's, there's other little groups that develop from the main groups, right? And um, how, how about this? When your kids reach a certain age, 14, 15, and you notice that they have um, countercultural um, ideas, you can reach out to another city and you can trade your child for a child from that city and you can perpetuate it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe, I guess. Uh, and no. it, I, I also, as I was listening to that, was thinking about all the little city states that would then start fighting with one another, right? Because next door, three miles down the road, you've got a bunch of, exactly. uh, of some other values over there. You know, how do we, we're, we're back to having those little Italian or Greek uh, city states um, and, and, you know, perpetual ongoing yeah. battle. I mean, that, yeah. and you still ultimately, I think all of this takes us back to the individual. I mean, you know, should should the kid growing up in that little insular charter city uh, not be allowed to have his or her own values? Um, you know, at the end of the day, the, I think the, the, the best way to allow for human flourishing is to try and um, protect the individual as much as possible, to allow him or her to hold their own views to not be coerced by the state or by other people. And I think that's something that we need to address as well. Um, you know, a lot of our protections for the individual are as against the state right now, our charter of rights and freedoms protects us from the overreach of the state into our individual autonomy, but that doesn't protect us from the mob. The mob uh, is really where the problem is primarily right now, mm -hmm. uh, which is another whole side issue. We can talk for days about this kind of stuff, but, um, you know, should that, at the end of the day, I still think that we're, we're best off as a society if we can find a way to allow that uh, each individual to arrive at his or her own um, ideal of how they want to live their lives in a way that doesn't harm anybody else, right? Um, you know, and, and, and the state largely stays out of that. And that's kind of where we were at. That's what we had developed and it was a good thing yeah. Um, but we've, again, we're allowing, um, 
you know, forces that are very collectivist and identitarian to, to, you know, um, water that ideal down and in fact, kind of eradicate it as much as possible. Yeah. Yep. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you two questions. One was, how do you think someone could develop courage? What are some practices that they could do? And the second question is, um, Ryan wrote an article about fit and it may be the case that what's actually going on is it's not the law society is not the legal profession is not systemically racist it's actually that many people are coming in and they don't fit in um because uh, cultural issues um you for example you mentioned that you came from a long line of farmers and working class people and i was curious about what you thought about this idea of fit and how how you would suggest um, whether it's a racialized lawyer or someone who's also coming from a working class background, the first to become a lawyer, how would you suggest they, um, they, they, what confront these issues and come out successful at the end? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I think fit is, is uh, a big, is an issue. And obviously, um, you know, you want to find a place that uh, you're going to be able to, maximize the things that you are personally looking for. Um, and it doesn't mean just because you didn't come from a long lineage of, of lawyers and professionals that you can't make it work on Bay Street. Um, you may very well be a, a good fit there because perhaps you know, your own personal goals are to, um, to, to work within that kind of an environment, to, um, to, to have the cottage, to have the Jaguar, to have the, you know, <clears throat> the, the accoutrements of that kind of showy success that often comes with having a job on, on an elite firm. Um, and there's nothing stopping you from that. If you don't feel right in it, yes, it may, it may be that uh, it just simply isn't uh, squaring with your own, with your own value system. Um, they, they demand a huge commitment of time and you know, your life is devoted to the place. Uh, not everybody wants to live their, live and breathe the law. Um, 24/7. And I mean, I think the woman who wrote that article initially that Ryan was talking about, you know, felt that her um, her some of her hobbies were being infringed on because she was expected to, to spend a lot of time in, in the office. Well, that that is what that culture entails. You know, that that is what working on Bay Street means, or at least it always did. And you get a lot of rewards at the end of it in terms of compensation, but you sell your, you know, I won't say you sell your soul, but you certainly sell. You have gold. You certainly sell a. Yeah, exactly. The golden handcuffs is a good way to put it. And so, uh, yeah, I think I would not have fit in very well in that environment. Um, personally, I, I, uh, I'm not a much of a materialist. I don't really care if I make a lot of money. I'd rather work on causes that I find important, you know, and on cases that I find important. I chose after law school. Um, I loved getting on my feet in a courtroom. That really made me happy. And I knew that uh, having done a lot of clinic work in law school and, and helping people, that that was where I found satisfaction. I was not an academic sort of uh, law student. I didn't, um, you know, love kind of debating the law per se, but I really loved helping people solve problems. And I'm a very sort of practical person. Um, and I knew that if I went to a big Bay Street firm, I, it would be five years you know, of carrying somebody else's briefcase before I actually got to do anything. So I went to a firm that uh, it was a small litigation firm. I think there were five or yeah, five five male lawyers at the time. Not that it mattered, but I was the only female lawyer. 
um, came on as an article student, they made it very clear that there would be no higher backs. And so I knew it was just a one year stint to get as much experience as possible. I knew I would be on my feet uh, a lot in court and I was right from the very beginning. It was very hands-on. I was, I basically, I had just an awesome article experience because, uh, you know, right from the very first day, I mean, I was handed files and said, here, run with this. And um, there was not a lot of handholding. I'm, not, I'm a very independent person. I, I can figure things out. So I really liked that. I didn't want to have to have it spoon fed to me. Um, and then I ended up getting hired back as it turned out. And, and it was great. It was great fit. So uh, fit is an important thing. Um, but it isn't necessarily, if you don't fit in necessarily something you can describe to being a female or being uh, racialized. I mean, maybe that's a factor, but I suspect it's only a factor and not the factor. Right. And I think we lose sight of the, we lose sight with all of this uh, identitarian stuff that um, we aren't just one thing. We aren't one factor. We are a complex um, creature with, you know, uh, values, experiences, and all sorts of other things that, that come into who we are. I mean, we're, we're religious or we're not, and we're um, we're fun loving or we're not, or we're secretive or we're open or, you know, like we're a whole bunch of things all combined to make us one, you know, beautiful, messy creature and uh, skin color or gender or sex really are like kind of almost irrelevant to all of that. I mean, your fit is going to come down to all those other qualities, you know, um, I, I think more so than, than the superficial ones. Um, and I think that's the case with you know, again, I'm not saying that there aren't some real true dinosaurs out there who treat people badly for for those immutable qualities. I just think that it's a pretty. Hold on. Hold, yeah. I think I think the argument though is not that someone is looking at you and thinks, "Oh, you're a black person or you're a brown person." Um, I don't like people like you, so we're going to stop. It's that. Mm -hmm. It's that. It's their personalities and their cultures have developed. Um, and they haven't developed in the same milieu as the people who are hiring them. And this is most closely associated with their um, race or their sex or their class. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, but, and so it may not oh, fair be, point. Yeah. yeah, it may not be exactly immutable um, because you can change your culture. <laughs> I guess you can change your sex too, um, but <laughs> sorry. Um, but I think you can, you can, I think you can change your personality, and if you truly want a certain position, then I think, I don't know. Uh, well, you can subsume some of that, right? Like you can, and I think everybody kind of has to, to some degree. Um, you know, when you're working with a bunch of other people in an environment, I think it's any environment really, even one that's very, very open, um, we all kind of, I think we all kind of, um, try to do what we can to um you know to, to fit in to mm -hmm. an environment we want to make it work right and so um uh yeah i mean i you know sure I'll, I'll grant that maybe some of those um some of those firms and i haven't been in one um i don't i haven't worked in one i don't they seem to be like they're they're um they're at least speaking a language of diversity whether they in fact um are I guess is another question. Speaking and speaking and doing are very different. I'd rather see them do than speak. Honestly, you know, if they're um, and I and I of course subscribe to the view that what you really want to have are a variety of different um, perspectives. You want diversity shouldn't just be 
hard left ideolo ideologues. It should be, you know, bringing people from a variety of cultures. I mean, I'm all for that, honestly. Um, and, and sure, you, having enough people from different backgrounds and cultures and viewpoints um, help does help to to expand what's what does fit, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but um, so so basically, you just got to find firms that that so sorry you know what how did you find out about the firm that you articled at how did you um probably from oh i don't know we probably had a career day or something and i just went around and interviewed people okay um yeah i so i guess it fit goes two ways you have to find the firm that fits you too you know mm -hmm. and and the people who you would work well with and who are interested in similar things and who are pursuing similar things as well. I guess mm -hmm. it, it goes both ways. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously there are going to be people that you work with. You're not going to see eye to eye on who are going to be frustrating or irritating or uh, offensive even. You know, um, when you say fit, I mean, a, a firm isn't a monolith. It isn't, a, it isn't just a thing all by itself. It's comprised of a whole bunch of different people. And some people you're going to have a better rapport with than others. Um, is there a cultural fit to a firm? I mean, I, you know, people who come from a bigger firm might might um, think that there is, and and it, yeah, I suppose if you're a bit different for one reason or another, you're you're you may not feel like like you belong there. Um, they do. I think they do tend to attract like-minded people a lot of times, and then you know that that develops right into. Um, into a culture within the firm that may or may not be for you. But I, you know, I don't know, maybe some people are finding that that's an, an issue because of their cultural backgrounds. Um, and, you know, and uh, you're, you're always free to go and start your own law firm too and, and carve your own path if you can't find one that's, that's right. And, and build your own community, right? Of, of bring in, hire other people, you know, develop a practice, hire others. The Jewish firms all did that back in the 60s when they were excluded from civil society back then and, and um, some of the clubs and organizations. And again, I don't think that this, that, that was not a good thing, but they, you know, they, they just kind of developed some, um, their own, their own firms as a, as a reaction to that. And, and we're very, very successful, many of them at doing that. Right. So um, before we wrap up, were there any other things that you wanted to talk about your work at the JCCF? Um, mm -hmm. um, cries of outrage, anything like that? Yeah, um, I don't know. We have this lots of stuff we could chat about, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I, one thing that's kind of been eye-opening, perhaps, this last four months. I've been working very hard, so I mean, I haven't had the luxury of thinking through a lot of things lately. There are a lot of things I would like to do and move forward um, in terms of dealing with the council culture and the, um, where where we're at in our particular culture. Uh, I have I have ideas and I have some things that I, I'd like to move forward with, but I just haven't had time. This last four months with the lockdown has been an incredibly um, eye-opening and busy period because uh, you know governments have been bringing in all sorts of bills that have been I think fairly authoritarian. Um, the impacts on people um, for reasons other than COVID nineteen have been dramatic as well, and we're just trying to clean up a lot of the mess. I mean. Uh, I've been working on cases, getting people back into their houses of worship that were closed, and, and now working on long-term care issues where people can't, you know, 
elderly people in long-term care homes have gone four months without seeing their families. I mean, there's just been so many impacts and so few people willing to push back on some of that, which is also kind of shocking. There's a certain political divide that has developed in the wake of this pandemic too, which has been interesting and um, instructive too. It just also reinforces the idea that most people are kind of just going with the flow and believing what they're told and not too many are willing to stand up against anything. Um, I'm not dismissing the, you know, COVID-19 as being something that you wouldn't necessarily want to have, but the reaction to it, I think has been quite disproportionate and, uh, particularly amongst young people, they're having to sacrifice a lot more than the risk would warrant. Um, anyway, it's just been kind of an interesting period to sort of observe again, almost a bit of a madness of crowds thing happening with the reaction to, to COVID and the, um, the inability or unwillingness of many people to consider other sources of information, to look at statistics, facts, um, and, and just kind of go with whatever narrative they're being told. And uh, it doesn't bode well, I don't think. And I sort of look at that as a bit of a microcosm of a broader problem where um, it just shows that the governments and, and crowds can really move the direction of our society in ways that we don't have a lot of control over. <laughs> Uh, and I, I find it a little demoralizing. I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but um, um, you yeah. said earlier that you were able to leave Facebook and go onto Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I would expect that that would be somewhat like walking from a uh, a asylum, like a temporary asylum, to like a permanent asylum because you're always being fed this stuff on Twitter. Do you have any tips on digital hygiene and how uh, someone can both make sure that they're not being exposed to selective information, but at the same time, make sure that their sanity is in still in one piece at the end of it. Because Twitter, I know like a couple of weeks ago when at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, I just felt like the world was going to end because I was glued to Twitter. And then I took a day off from it and I'm like, wow, life's pretty good, actually. It's not that bad. <laughs> um, so do you have any digital hygiene tips? Well, I think... You, uh... You know, I think Twitter is largely evil. Uh, (laughs) And honestly, the world, you know, I'm of probably one of the generations, one of the only generation maybe that grew up entirely without social media, entirely without computers, um, but is not so old that I haven't been able to jump into it, right? So, um, So I know both worlds very well. And I think generally speaking, the, um, the technological world in which we live has not been a benefit to society. Um, there are some benefits, but overall, I think it's been a, a net negative. Um, it has dumbed us all down dramatically. Uh, we are all, I sense it in myself. I, I, I have physically felt my brain change over the last decade. Like I, I used to um, be an avid reader. <clears throat> um, I still love books. I collect, I have like a house full of books. Mm-hmm. Do I sit down and, and get lost in one as often as I used to? Nope, not even close. I barely can read through articles now. I'm My attention span is 240 characters or whatever Twitter says it is. Yep. And um, and it's appalling. And, and so, and I have sensed this for quite a long time. Even when I was homeschooling, I noticed that I was becoming more of a consumer than a producer because 
there was just sort of an endless amount of information and new um, sparkly curricula and things that I could learn about here and there and everywhere. And, and I was always kind of pulling in and never kind of pushing out uh, a product anymore. I did blog for a while and I did, and, and that felt kind of good. There are books that I could be writing and should have written um, on, on a variety of different things, but, um, and during all those years that I was home with the kids, I had ample time, but I was busy consuming. And I, so I, I, I don't have an answer other than don't do that. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think we need Twitter. And yes, it is sort of nice when you turn it off and you walk out the street and you, um, but remember that it is, um, it, it, the real world is Twitter still. I mean, yes, it's a kind of a negative concentration of everything, but the people who are thinking aloud on Twitter are real people in our society. And they think those things, whether you pass them on the street and, and you know, just had a nice little hello, where they don't know what you think and you don't know what they think and everything seems lovely. But if you found them on Twitter and saw what they thought, you might not have had that nice little exchange, right? Like we are becoming extremely polarized and extremely moved and um, divided into our echo chambers. I have watched a lot of people um, become far, far more extremist in their views over the what two, two, two and a half years I've been on Twitter, um, and probably myself too. Um, it's almost inevitable, you know. You sort of you, you sort of pick your tribe. You know what's comfortable, and that's the stuff you follow. Uh, it is really quite a destructive and dangerous thing, but I don't think it should be dismissed. I don't think we should check out of it because we do need to know how the people who are shooting our culture think. And if we didn't know that, we wouldn't know what battle we were fighting right now. And there are a lot of people who are oblivious to all that because only a small number of people are actually on Twitter, but they are people who are instrumental in moving our culture. The, the masses aren't doing it. They aren't, they're just living their lives. They aren't gonna change things. And that's been the case through many, many historical periods of time. It's a small number of people who shift the dial and move and move things dramatically one place or another. It is not generally the masses who just are going about their lives. And so uh, it is nice to break free every once in a while. I think that's a good thing. Um, I should do a better job of it. I think taking a sabbatical one day a week or something um, would be would be ideal. I haven't been able to do it. From Twitter? Um, from Twitter or from just all the you know media and actually focus on just producing. Yeah. Um, but uh, as is... I'm busy with work, it's harder to find the time for it. And that's, that's good. But... Part of my job is actually kind of being aware of what's going on in the culture war, so yeah. um, I kind of have to keep keep on top of it. But. Right. Okay. So, on that note, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was a pleasure. Um, oh, my pleasure. I, I can't wait to write the, the 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 Twitter thread for this conversation because I'll I'll be like, Lisa Bildy has explosive news about Ryan Hadlarski's idea about this and <laughs> Kalen Ford's. Just make it look really silly like yeah. that. Well, sure, and, and have fun with it. But, you know, I have a great respect for this platform, for the opportunity for you and for for podcasting generally, but for, you know, for you for having for having these long drawn out conversations, because I really think it's important that we uh, that we talk to each other. I mean, I came onto Twitter, just one other tiny little thing. I came onto Twitter and my handle initially was wisdom in the middle. Wisdom because I figured I finally figured some things out by age 50. Mm. Um, but in the middle, because that's where I always have been. I'm very actually despite maybe what you've just heard for the last two hours, I actually am a fairly nuanced person. Um, always have been. I've never really taken hardline positions on most things through my life because I've always heard the other side and gone, oh, 
that's an interesting argument too. And, and, oh, okay, I get the point there. And then I tried to spend my life synthesizing and figuring things out as I went along. I, I was never uh, fully in one camp or another ever up until I started to feel myself being pulled a little bit more away from what I would say the social justice side, but still, I don't think I'm like extremist. Um, but it is so important to me to hear other opinions and, um, you know, we barely just touched on the idea that perhaps there were some cultural issues that um, may fit a problem. I would like to learn more about that. Uh, I do want to hear other perspectives. I don't want to assume that I know everything because I, I grow as a person very much by having in-depth conversations. And so um, it scares me that we, we don't want to have conversations. We don't want to hear other opinions in our broader society. And uh, so thank you for keeping that dialogue open. It's really important. It, it's, it's my pleasure. I'll, I'll try and have more of these conversations. And, and, and um, it, it would just be so much better, I think, if... Okay, let's take the example of systemic racism. Um, many people complain about there being barriers to their um, pursuit of success in their careers. And I think it would be better for us to, instead of saying that it is ideologically motivated and stuff like that, which, it, to be honest, it is many times, but I think it would be more productive instead of criticizing it for being systemically racist or whatever it may be to address the root causes of why they feel that way and to mm -hmm. create solutions. And that's what I was trying to do in our conversation, which was if you don't feel like you belong in a certain place, what can you do instead? Um, and, and stuff like that. And I think that that is sorely missing from many of the critiques of these ideologies. And like I'm person number one, I haven't been addressing these issues myself mm -hmm. but i in, if you're going to critique something like that you have to i you don't have to i think you are more productive if you provide an alternative to the root cause so for example with police brutality you can argue that um the rcmp are systemically racist they are picking on aboriginals and this is bad and then as a result of that you can argue someone else can argue oh that's just ideology it's postmodern ideology um, you're just using equality of outcome um, as proof of systemic racism. I think a better position than that would be to say, um, this is, we need to see, we need to see whether the RCMP are treating each individual fairly, whether they are um, treating others more poorly than others. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so then you are failing on a liberal scale and also, are there issues with the process? I just looked into BC's um, police complaint system and it turns out that there are seven different bodies that you have to go to to find even information about where your dead relative is is actually placed right now if they have been killed by the police. You And there's like a different place for complaints. And then it turns out that many of these bodies which are judging police uh, members on their conduct for um, brutality cases. Many of them are retired RCMP police officers, which brings into question whether they have a conflict of interest, mm -hmm. whether they are looking at it from the wrong position. And I just think that there has not been any attention paid to the root causes from the from the uh, the right or from classical liberals, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really um, it, it does them a disservice to the ideas because the only people who are trying to fix the the root causes and the root issues are these left-wing ideologues. And that's mm -hmm. not a good idea because they yeah. occupy the institutions. 
No, I agree with you, um, actually. And, and uh, I think a lot of the problem is that because things have become polarized, we aren't dealing with the nuances of every argument. We're, we're you know, I, and I'm guilty of it too. And through this conversation have dismissed the social justice um, ideologues. And now I think with some good reason, because, you know, they, they tend not to ground their complaints in facts and evidence. If you present to me facts and evidence, I, I was making a little joke on Twitter the other day that, um, you know, that uh, I'm not a problematizer, I'm a solutionizer. I don't, and, and the critical theory is all about problematizing. It's all about finding, you know, uh, critiquing things, but I don't sense that they're really all about solutions and neither, and neither are we because we're now reacting to that and seeing it as a political blanket statement that everybody just throws out. What do you actually mean by that? Where, where is the problem? And I, and that's why when I went through the report initially in 2017, I thought, okay, they've just said that our profession is systemically racist. I was actually mortified. So I thought, what has happened to this profession? You know, um, like, I didn't think it was like that before. What, where's it gone wrong? And I wanted to understand. And I sat down and I read probably unlike, you know, most lawyers who would not have taken the time of day. I sat down and I read all 53 pages or whatever it was very carefully trying to find the problem so that we could address the problem. Right. I didn't see it. I didn't see it laid out for me uh, in a way that I felt could be addressed in a practical way. I'm a very practical person. I would like to solve the problems. And some of the things you just identified, those are practical things. Right. You know, you could, you could immediately see, okay, there could be an issue there. How can we fix that so that isn't an issue, so that there isn't that perhaps inherent bias right in, in there? But unfortunately, the dialogue has, has become so uh, political. And, you know, so the social justice people who are small as small j social justice, okay, they have a very valid role to play in our society. Somebody does need to be looking out for the little guy. That's really important. And I, as somebody who did poverty law and so on in my earlier career, um, I, you know, I completely agree that um, there are people who get kind of shoved aside and, and, and um, you know, kind of get the, the, the short end of the stick in life, I guess. Um, and, uh, but, but unfortunately, the small as small j social justice people have been kind of subsumed into the broader political movement, which has other aims. And now once I have seen that, I can't unsee it. And now I too look at that and go, okay, that's just a bunch of neo-Marxist stuff that's designed to take down our society. And so then I, I don't parse out the actual real issues that might be embedded in it that could benefit from some conversation. You know, and so if there is like a, a problem with police brutality, okay, well, I want to see the stats and they're hiding those stats, by the way, which tells me it's all political. They don't want to talk about the stats. I, I want to talk about the stats. I want to see what the evidence says and see if maybe they're, because most problems, as you know, are not the result of one thing. They are, there are many, many factors that, that go into a problem. And, I, and our society isn't a mess just because of the social justice warriors either, for yeah. that matter. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other factors that we need to be able to have a conversation about if we want to fix any of them. We need to know what we're dealing with. What's the problem so we can, we can find the solution? And if you're going to make a blanket statement that there's systemic racism, and you're not going to tell me what that means, and what the actual problems are, then we can't have a conversation about that, right? Like you're just telling me I'm a bad person because I happen to have a skin color. That's how I'm going to react to that, and most people are going to react to that because you've made it political and you've made it, um, you've made it kind of personal, 
and put me on the on the defensive rather than bringing me in as somebody who might be uh, able to you know help work out a solution. So okay. let me let me uh, when let I say me, you, I mean the social justice. Let, let me play devil's advocate. The argument that they would make against this is that. Um, if we do not call you racists, you will never pay attention to the, you'll never pay attention to the actual issues like police brutality, um, and and recognize that it's a problem or not. They will never reach the light of day, unless we we shout it loud and clear that you have a responsibility to address these issues. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose, but the the all the other part of that is is that again, you're you know, you're playing with fire a little bit because you're telling people that they're bad. I mean, nobody's, hardly anybody's a parent anymore, it seems like. And when you become a parent, you learn a lot about human nature. Um, and those are valuable tools that you can take out into the rest of the world. And I honestly think um, this is a, um, a, a bit of an issue. One of the things that you learn is that if you tell somebody that they're bad all the time, guess what? They're going to be bad, right? You don't, that's parenting rule number i don't know maybe not number one but it's up there um you know you don't you don't say that somebody is bad you take say that the behavior is bad and or or needs to be improved upon right you don't cast aspersions on the character of the child and say you're a you're a horrible evil thing and there's no hope for you and and then expect to get good behavior you're not going to get it you're going to get a rebellion you're going to have you're going to you're going to raise a kid that's a problem so um, what do you do? Well, you, you talk about the specific issue at question. You know, okay, I don't like how this happened and how you did this and how can we fix that? So, so when the Robin D'Angelo's of the world come out and say you're an irredeemable, you know, lower than a snake's belly in a gutter, horrible racist, guess what? You're not gonna encourage people to sit down with you and solve the problems. I'm not saying that there aren't problems. I'm sure there are problems. There are all kinds of problems, but that's not the way to get my attention and a good many other people. And while I can, can recognize that this discourse is sort of ivory tower-ish and doesn't mean what it seems to mean, you know, when they critique whiteness and so on, there are a whole lot of people out there in the real world who hear things like that and don't interpret it as generously. Yeah. And so what you're doing is you're actually creating the beginnings of a backlash that is going to be far uglier than what you were dealing with in the first place. Far, far uglier. Like, I think they're going to unleash the gates of hell eventually here if they keep this up. Um, and that frightens me. I worry about the reaction just as much as I worry about what's what they're doing right now. Um, that doesn't solve problems, it creates problems. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, look, um, yeah, you got our attention, but not in a very good way. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's, um, should just be on, by the way, one person, one group's skin color to solve problems. We should all be kind of figuring out um, solutions together, right? I mean, I don't know, if you're gonna live in a pluralistic society, again, I actually think that my views as a sort of classical liberal are to the greatest benefit of minorities of all kinds, because, you know, it. It allows each person to flourish individually and not be kind of condemned for being a part of a group or whatever. So, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I just don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a helpful approach. It does get people's attention, but it it, it just isn't gonna. It isn't gonna achieve the desired result. 
Um, talk talk about specific problems and let's. And the, and the thing about Mark, uh, there was a political science paper that I read a couple of weeks ago, and they compared um, peaceful protests to violent protests and riots in the United States. And they found that mass peaceful protests in the 60s, they looked at the 60s protests, they found that the mass peaceful protests actually um, garnered sympathy from the ruling class, the people who, the movers and shakers. And, mm -hmm. and this led to positive change uh, in in the milieu, but when the protests were violent, people got defensive and they got scared, and this led to law and order candidates like Richard Nixon coming into power, and of course he instituted the war on drugs, which yep. destroyed many black families, and still does so today. And I think the same will happen um, for situations where you're calling someone a racist when they're not, neither are they trying to be, nor are they in reality? I don't think so. Um, people are going to start getting defensive, then they're going to start getting angry and resentful. And I, I think it's possible that we could have a civil war. And I wouldn't have said that two months ago, three months mm -hmm. ago, but it's realistic, especially in the United States where everyone is armed to the, they're seriously armed. It's, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's a realistic possibility. And I think we, we, we don't have that understanding of how civilization can break down. Um, mm -hmm. Europe has that, and they know what the consequences of that are because World War II is fresh in their memory. In North America, we've been really lucky. We haven't had um, revolutions and things like that. And and I hope this serves only to be... I hope this is a wake-up call to remind people that, you know, things get a lot worse, and they can get a lot mm -hmm. worse quickly. Um, so let's try not to antagonize everyone as as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I, I do think that uh, that's quite possibly where we're heading. The kindling is certainly all there. It's not going to take much to spark it at this point. And I think a lot of people want it because they see that having a conflict might be the way to actually bring an end to this interminable dispute. Um, like, like we need to have a bit of a bloodletting every once in a while in humanity. Um, you know, it's again, it's it's kind of part of our our human condition. Um, it's an appalling part of it, and we work very very hard, or we should, we have been, to kind of come to a place where we don't have these wars all the time. And I think we were making some obviously great strides, but so it, it's very interesting to kind of, after all these years of peace, to think how willingly we we are, how willing we are to to kind of throw all of that away um, and allow this kind of anger and aggression to flourish. And, and uh, um, uh, you know, I think Europe is probably largely starting to forget too. I mean, it's, mm. it's most of that generation's gone, but, but certainly, yeah. But, and, and being in Canada, we're not insulated from it because even though our main political parties are all fairly narrowly condensed on the, on the spectrum of political um, perspectives. I mean, I think we're probably, all, all of our parties are closer to the Democrats than, um, at least they historically were, you know, more all around the sort of spot on the spectrum where the Democrats used to be. They're not there anymore. Um, they are far more polarized in the states, but nonetheless, it all sort of bleeds across the border so readily now that we forget that we're not Americans um, and the conflict and the polarization occurs here too. And you start to see that when you've got, you know, the liberal leaders um, accusing the... Um, you know, conservative leaders of being kind of Trumpian or something like as though as though they're all in the same category. Well, not really, but like we we 
have let ourselves become just as polarized, even though we don't have the same kind of system as the Americans. We don't really, ours doesn't lead, lend itself to the same kind of polarization, but we're allowing it to bleed in and we're pretending we're just as polarized effectively here in Canada mm. as they are in the States. So we're not immune to, to having a broader conflict here too. Earlier you said that um, women have a certain power in the workplace that they seem to have forgotten. Um, and that to me sounds a lot like Camille Paglia's idea of, of sexual power, which I think modern women have forgotten of, especially waspy women, um, because the whole, it seems to me like the, the law firm, the big corporate law firm tries to um, get rid of that as much as possible and, and to reduce it. And I think the Me Too movement as well is starting to, it, it tries to, tries to get rid of that as well. But what do you what do you think about this sexual power or this different type of power that women have in the workplace that they don't uh, use as much as they used to? Or it sounds really bad, but yeah, <laughs> it does sound. And, I, and my answer is not going to sound very good either. Um, you know, I don't know about um, whether it's all that useful in the workplace anymore. We, we are women, I think now largely um, uh, equal to men uh, on on a level playing field. And I know a lot of women don't feel that way. Um, I certainly felt in my own in my own career historically that I, I, I was not um, um, discriminated against in any way for being female. And uh, I didn't really feel like I had to use any sort of special powers, but I didn't, you know, there was an, the older kind of um, male who was not maybe as sensitive to um, to gender equality issues you know, sometimes would would make the odd remark that you you know you just kind of absorbed it and took it for what it was and i i, I just refused to let myself be offended by a, a slightly flirtatious remark um oftentimes it was a way um of developing a rapport uh with with older especially male colleagues I'm not saying you know overt harassment or, or nastiness, which I wouldn't tolerate, but with um, but with just sort of a, a little bit of a genteel flirtatiousness or something, I did not ever take that as harassment. I did not um, scream and yell about it or complain about it. I just I rolled with it and turned it into something positive um, because it is a bit of a power. It you know men want to please women. That is. It's a reality that I think a lot of women have forgotten. Um, there, I have I have moved in a variety of different roles, and so let me just kind of back up and say, um, I a lot of my observations in life not don't come from 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 books, um, political philosophy, that kind of thing, from feminist readings or anything like that. It's just my own personal observations. I I have all my life felt like I could sort of step outside my own experience, my own body, and kind of question. Um, how I viewed and how I interacted in certain situations and kind of develop an analysis of my own experiences, I guess, I don't know. But I have a number of different experiences through life. One um, as a feminist, not sorry, as a female professional, uh, I never really have called myself a feminist by the way, but um, as a female aggressive career driven professional in the early part of my career up to about age 32 when I had my first kid, um, I was, for a lot of that, um, well, I was childless during that period of time and very, very driven. 
Um, and I had a lot of observations with other women. I you know when, it, when I came across somebody who had left their career and gone off to raise their kids, I kind of thought they were a bit odd. Like, why would you give up your career? I was very, very sort of judgmental of women who went on, on a stay-at-home mom kind of path. And then I ultimately ended up going on one myself um, unexpectedly. Um, I guess because I'm, I'm kind of a control freak. You know, I, I was in the hospital uh, pregnant about to give birth to my first child and I had my briefcase there and I was dictating things to my secretary and um, seriously like I was going to be gone like three months and back and I and I wasn't quite ready to go and I was still trying to transfer files and I was still very very focused on on um, career and and that was the sort of be all and end all for me and then I had this child and in the hospital um, when this, I, this little tiny thing was all swaddled up and there was nothing showing but his face and he was looking up at me with the widest wisest eyes and i thought holy crap my my paradigm shift just occurred in that instant where i realized that i was responsible for somebody else's life and all those files that i was so worried about transferring to another lawyer who wouldn't handle them nearly as well as me um now i had this child and i started to feel the same way about that like I have this responsibility now to raise this child. So, I, so then I became a stay-at-home mom for a while, which was very weird having come from an all-male firm and I tend to be more comfortable around men generally uh, to now being in mom and me groups and being around a lot of women and um, and then I homeschooled. I mean, that's just weird. And suddenly I'm in this world, again, full of women who are completely devoted to their children. And I made a lot of observations about myself and about other women as I was going through these different kind of uh, spheres where women were were involved, and I noticed that um, the women who were actually home uh, homeschooling in particular um, were largely the happiest with their lives. I mean, when I was a professional woman uh, earlier, I am again, but I, um, when I was the first go round, I remember going to a, a breakfast meeting of women women in the law, the women women trial lawyers, and. One of the women said, if it wasn't for all the damn feminists, we could be home with our kids. And all the heads nodded around the table were shocking to me. I, I thought, are you guys kidding? Like, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it because I didn't have kids and I didn't know what that what that pull was away from from your from your child at that time. Um, but I never kind of heard from the women who were home with their kids and homeschooling that they desperately wanted to be in their careers. So it was just interesting to kind of observe women in different environments. And when I came back to practicing um, in 2017, and I started to hear from younger women who felt very marginalized and discriminated against and harassed, and this was very much part of the narrative. They were very much victims, it sounded like, in, in the way that they viewed themselves. It was always somebody else doing something to them. And I, I really couldn't get my head around that. Um, when I left the profession, I was feeling like an empowered professional, right? And an empowered woman. And I, I never saw myself as a victim. And again, like I said, if there was somebody who said something that was um, maybe a little inappropriate because they didn't know any better, I just turned it around as a way of, of having a, um, a banter, a, a sort of pleasant banter with somebody, right? Like you, know, you flirt back a little bit, right? It's, it was just thing you did. Uh, and women today sort of seem to view that as, as just completely inappropriate. And I'm not talking right. about sexual abuse. I mean, right. 
there's, there's a line there, but we seem to have gotten really crazy about where that line should be, I guess. And we're expecting men to not behave like men. So we got women who are not really behaving that much like women necessarily. We've completely forgotten that we have distinct um, characteristics. They overlap a lot, but there is there are some differences, and we've we've completely papered over any differences. We want to pretend they don't exist. We want to tell the men that they can't have any of those particular um, characteristics that are sort of normal for them, and and we respond badly when when they exhibit them um, or, or aggressively. Yeah, I don't know. It's just. I don't know if I'm getting to the answer that you were looking for, but I noticed nope. during the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, if you want to get back to the power that women have, this is going to get me in a lot of trouble, I know, but uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, when when we were talking about the, uh, the incident that happened with Justice Kavanaugh when he was a 17-year-old in a room with a girl and kind of, you know, got on top of her and, and she didn't like it. And, and years and years and years and years later, uh, this is a reason for him not to be confirmed as a um, as a justice. And I just remember being quite shocked about that because I was once a teenage girl and I can remember going to those parties knowing full well the power that I had over young men. And um, those were the kinds of reactions that oftentimes you wanted to provoke in a way because you wanted to know that you had that sexual power. As a teenager, you're trying to figure out where the line is and what power you in fact do have. And I, so when I hear about women saying that they're, you know, they're victims, I think it's a mischaracterization of, of the whole uh, event that you were involved in. And again, I want to make clear, I'm not talking about somebody being attacked and raped and, you know, but I'm talking about the, the sort of interaction, which maybe just went a little bit too far, but you sort of learn from those kinds of things, right? As, as a teenager, you're figuring out, okay, well, maybe I, Maybe my power was, um, you know, I, um, how can I put this? Uh, you know, may, maybe there was, maybe I kind of went too far myself. And so I, next time I have to be more careful. I certainly ended up in situations too, which now looking back um, were, were quite horrible. Um, but you get through them and you learn a lesson from them. And I would not now go out and try and take down somebody who I was in that situation because they were trying to figure it out too. They're trying to figure out where the line is when you're, when you're a teenager. And we don't allow teenagers anymore now um, the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them because we condemn them immediately. And now we hold it over their heads 35 years later or whatever uh, and, and want to punish them for it. And that was, to me, that was absolutely shocking. And, and I was disgusted, honestly, by the women's movement in that particular situation because I thought, um, we are not victims. Women are not victims. And I'm, the feminists are all going to hate me, but I'm sorry, we're not victims. And I, I found this in family law too. We were empowered women who could handle ourselves on men's territory and do just as well as men. But oh, by the way, in family court, when we're going through divorce, we're completely vulnerable and he has to pay for us forever because we cannot possibly work again as long as we live um, because, you know, the patriarchy or something. So. <laughs> So, so then, uh, how? So, in this, I have not been exposed to this world. Not that I have a career now either, but in this other world where there is a certain appreciation for playful flirtation, there was also very obviously people who pushed that too far. Mm -hmm. Probably men who were predatory, um, and then perhaps there were women who used um, sex to their advantage as well which tilts the playing field for both. There's the predatory men, and then there are women who are willing to use sex to 
um, move forward in the workplace. Um, so how would you, how I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but how did you draw the line when a man um, did something that moved too far, that where it stopped from being playful and started getting on to where it crossed the line? How would you redraw that line? Um, well, I mean, you, you, you make your opinions known. And in most cases, the person will kind of get the message and back off. Um, um, obviously, if you're, a, you know, on the receiving end of sustained harassment, then you, you, you know, you may have to bring somebody else in. Um, but we are, I think, jumping to that right off the bat. Um, I don't know. I, get, I, I can't speak for everybody's experiences. Um, right. I know lots of women have you know, maybe a different tolerance level for it too. I just, okay, I remember a little story when I was an article student. It was my first year at the firm. And um, there was one lawyer who got a little bit ridiculous when he drank. We were at our firm holiday party and uh, um, I didn't know him all, all that well, but we'd had gag gifts given out ahead of time. And <clears throat> my gift, a gag gift, like just some jokey gift for a Christmas exchange, right? So my gift was a little elf that when you squeezed it, it said, F you. Um, it's really Christmassy. Uh, anyway, this partner who, um, you know, I was, I didn't know all that well, started saying some stuff and it wasn't like it was, I don't know. It was, it was just kind of weird stuff because he'd been drinking a little bit and uh, it, it had a bit of a, a bit of a sort of inappropriateness to it, I guess. I, I don't even want to repeat it. It was just kind of, it was just stupid stuff. Um, but it, it did kind of, I think today probably would have been treated as something inappropriate to say. And inappropriate in like a racial or a sexual, sexual or... sort of thing, like, okay. you know, just kind of focusing on, I think it was something along, it was along the lines of, you know, how do you have a period every month and, and uh, deal with the fact that you still don't have a child or something like that. It was just like a dumb, just a dumb comment, you know, and, and he'd been drinking. And I just sat there and I looked at him and I mean, I'm the, you know, I'm the article student, right? I have no power in this situation, but I just looked at him and I picked up my little elf and I squeezed it in his face. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> and we moved on. He laughed. We moved on. Honest, honest to God, I went on and I had a long and wonderful relationship with that man, working side by side with him. And he was a great mentor. If I had gotten all bogged down in his stupid comment, that wouldn't have happened, right? I mean, you just kind of have to learn to roll with the odd thing. People just can be stupid sometimes. There is a line, I just feel like sometimes we forget that it doesn't have to be quite as extreme. You know, I don't think anybody should be putting up with sustained harassment. I really am not saying that. I don't, I'm not saying that women are wrong all the time either. But I'm saying that sometimes there's a little bit of harmless interaction and banter that goes back and forth. And, and it's not all the man who has the power in these situations. Women have power too. And men are trying to uh, achieve something. And, you know, a lot of times women are too. And, and we forget that they're, that is kind of how we're wired to. We want to pretend that it doesn't exist at all. And we want to kind of, you know, legislate it out of existence, um, you know, take it to harassment tribunals or whatever, uh, take it to the HR department. Some of it we can roll with. And it's not, it's not all bad. Um, I guess, I just think we can take things a little bit, um, we, we don't need to destroy one another over things like that. Again, and I like there is a line. I just, so I, I just think we've gone too far with it. 
And I liked as well how you used humor in that situation. Um, because, like in my experience, when I call someone out, when they do something that I don't like, it, it gets under my skin. But then when I take it seriously, they start laughing at me, and then it gets under my skin even more. And so it's so important to be able to, um, I don't know, call out someone and humiliate them and make a joke out of them and joke about it at the same time all at once. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're, like, in my opinion, we should be teaching kids um, how to become comedians as well as how to like fight on the streets, self-defense. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that would make society a bit better. Like today, even, it's the comedians, Andrew Schultz. He had a really funny um, stick about how the Confederate flag, why would you fly that in the United States? Forget about the racism stuff. They were losers, you know? They lost the only war that they ever waged. Um, it's so un-American. Why, why would you fly that? And it was funny. And he, he carried that message at the same time. And I think that like, comedy is so underrated today. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's extremely important as well. Well, yeah. it's true. And we can, I, I've noticed that too, that comedy has kind of disappeared, honestly, because part of comedy is poking fun at, uh, at truths. And... Um, we're not allowed to do that anymore. We have to take everything so seriously. And you know, that's just another sign that we're kind of in, we've moved into the puritanical phase of, uh, of this new religion. And, um, you know, you, you're not allowed to laugh about it. Um, we, we'd all get along a lot better, I think, if we could find ways, because that's, that is a way of kind of, even, even if somebody's being poked fun at a little bit, um, you know, you'll get yours eventually too. And, and it's a way of, I don't know, kind of, binding us together a little bit i think it's it, it, it's helpful to laugh together instead of constantly being at each yeah. other's throats right uh and yeah. it can go too far too and, and i don't mean by any of this to suggest that you know um that there are again real problems with sexism right. in the workplace I, all i'm trying to say the only, the takeaway from my message is look I, i've been around the block a little bit i've been a woman in professional and at home careers i've seen both sides I've, I find, um, you know, women are more complex creatures in a lot of ways and harder to make happy. Um, I, I think men are actually relatively simple. I live, I live with a lot of men. I work with men. I, um, I mean, I have a husband and two boys and, and two stepsons. So I'm, I'm kind of around men a lot. I work in an all male. Um, I have worked in all male environments. I've also led women when I led homeschooling groups and I led men and when I did mostly men with stop, stop. Um, and, and I don't mean to, again, overgeneralize, but women are a little bit harder to please. And I, and I think that um, uh, we tend to oh, maybe over dramatize things or over uh, analyze things instead of just kind of rolling with it. Um, I can remember how refreshing it was having had female roommates for a couple of years in university to suddenly have a couple of male roommates. And wow, I mean, because with the women, we were like, you know, you, were, you had a dispute and instead of resolving it, you just didn't speak to each other for six weeks. And I didn't understand that. I'm not a real kind of female female, I guess. And, um, whereas with the guys, you just, you'd have your falling out, you'd swear at each other and boom, you were back to just carrying on. And it was just, it seemed healthier in a lot of ways. I think we as women have to not let ourselves always be perceived as um, victims. I, I don't think that that is a very healthy way to, to view ourselves. Um, I feel quite empowered. And when I feel empowered to 
you know, to do my job. Uh, other people kind of gravitate to me. I'm not, um, I don't think I'm off-putting. I'm not, you know, people don't have to walk on eggshells around me to, you know, to, to worry about what I might be offended by, you know, because I'm very, right. and I think for that reason, I am um, able to lead men as much as women because they don't have to worry. They can just be open with me. And if they step out of line, I may jokingly put them back in their place. But, and sometimes I will lash out. I will, I don't take a lot of guff either. If somebody is out of line, I will, I will smack them down. Um, right. I just think we as women forget sometimes we have a certain amount of power. And if we come into the world feeling put upon, feeling that we're victims, feeling like, like everything is a, a slight against us, we don't advance ourselves. We don't advance women. We, uh, we leave our, we, it's like that analogy with the um, telling a child that they're bad all the time and they are bad. Well, we tell ourselves we're victims all the time, and guess what? Guess what? That's where we're gonna. That's where we're telling young girls we are, and as they grow up, and that's where they're gonna find themselves. And they don't have to be that way. We don't have to be victims. Uh, there's no excuse for for that kind of a way of thinking in the Western world. Yep, man. You're going to get in trouble for this. I'm <laughs> definitely going to get in trouble for this. But, you don't have to post uh, it. Uh, you can... No, no. I, I... <laughs> so I think I will. And I think it'll be worth it. And I think, I hope it'll be worth it. But I think it's also important to show that there's another side to this debate and to this issue and an alternative to the current solution out there, which I think is to minimize all sexual interactions possible. Um, which I don't think seems healthy. Um, I don't know about this very much because I'm gay, and so I just haven't understood that. But it's interesting to to hear about. Um, so so yeah. Thank you so much for telling uh, me about this. Well, I, it was I hope fun. it doesn't work. I I hope I hope we don't get into too much trouble for this, but that's okay. okay. Well, you always know where the delete button is if you need it, right? True, true, <laughs> okay. true. Or and and maybe I can like create a slate of my own and 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 win an election or something like that you never know what will happen right well i do i really enjoyed chatting with you this afternoon it was great fun